race is on to work out a deal on the debt ceiling, and House Democrats are getting more critical of their Republican counterparts. They do not have the votes to make the cuts they are trying to bully the president into making because they want the president to share in the blame. This just days before the U.S. could run out of money to pay its bills. It's Thursday, May 25th. This is All Things Considered. Good afternoon. I'm Lynn Jolliker in for Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, the former leader of the Oath Keepers is sentenced to the longest term yet for the 2021 Capitol insurrection. And the Boston-based band Q-Tip Bandits hopes their music connects with new fans at the Boston Calling Festival this weekend. Music was like my way of connecting with something when I didn't connect with the people around me. It was my way of having artists that sang songs that made me feel not alone when I felt alone. It's 401. The news is first. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. White House and congressional negotiators are facing a major time crunch in reaching an agreement to raise the nation's debt ceiling. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports June 1st, one week from today, is the earliest that the U.S. could run out of money to pay its bills. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy says every hour matters in getting a bill across the finish line. That's why we worked well past midnight last night. The team they have is very professional, very bright. They know where the differences are. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre says avoiding default on the nation's debt is not a matter of debate, but the responsibility of Congress. You've heard all the congressional leaders make it clear that default is not an option. The president has said that, the speaker has said that, and we want the American people to understand that as well. House Republicans are demanding that any deal must cut federal spending in exchange for raising the debt ceiling. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. The U.S. Supreme Court is sharply limiting which waterways get federal protections in the country. NPR's Nathan Rott reports a decision could have major repercussions for the country's wetlands. For decades, politicians, lawyers, and interest groups have argued about the scope of the Clean Water Act, which waterways the landmark law actually protects. A federally protected waterway means more paperwork and roadblocks for an industry or developer looking to build or pollute. On Thursday, the Supreme Court sided with private landowners in Idaho who wanted to develop, building a home near a lake, but were stopped by federal law. As a result, now many wetland areas in the country, places that clean water, provide habitat for wildlife, and help manage floods, will no longer be protected under federal law. The Supreme Court's decision is a major victory for industry and developers across the country. Nathan Rott, NPR News. Today marks three years since George Floyd was killed by a police officer on a Minneapolis street. Minnesota Public Radio's John Collins reports Floyd's murder led to a national reckoning on race and policing. Minneapolis Mayor Jacob Fry says his administration has worked since Floyd's killing to institute changes to the city's police department, including crisis intervention responders and clearer guidance for officer discipline. We're not shying away from the murder of George Floyd. We're leaning into it, recognizing that things need to change and change with urgency. Minneapolis recently agreed to a settlement with the State Department of Human Rights that requires changes to the police department's policies and training. They're also being investigated by the U.S. Department of Justice. For NPR News, I'm John Collins, Minneapolis. 
The Dow Jones Industrial Average closed down 35 points, ending the day at 32,764. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. Massachusetts doctors say they're working to minimize the effect of nationwide shortages of certain cancer drugs. As WBUR's Gabriella Emanuel reports, experts say shortages have become increasingly common over the last decade. When Jonathan Gerber started as an oncologist, he says drug shortages happened, but they were rare. Now it is a common thing that something at any given time is on shortage. Gerber now directs the cancer center at UMass Memorial Health. He says often there are good alternatives, but occasionally doctors do have to ration care. Gerber says Massachusetts is lucky to have a large cluster of doctors and healthcare systems that can help each other out. Because there's so many nearby surrounding hospitals, that ability to borrow between centers is an option. And he says large health systems have more purchasing power, which may help minimize shortages. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Gabriela Emanuel. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu says she's reviewing the new redistricting map passed by the city council yesterday. Wu says she has experts also looking over the plan. A federal judge said the council's previous map improperly broke up districts based on race. The mayor will need to sign the map into law by Tuesday so the fall elections will not be disrupted. Massport is warning travelers to expect large crowds at Logan Airport this holiday weekend. Massport's Director of Aviation, Ed Frenny, expects travel to approach pre-pandemic levels. In terms of numbers, we expect tomorrow, today and tomorrow, be very busy, somewhere around 130 to 140,000 people using Logan in and out, which are big numbers and very close to what our numbers were in 2019. Frenny is encouraging people to use public transportation to get into and out of Logan. Well, on the roads, people are getting a jump on the weekend. Traffic is heavy and slow on the expressway from Boston down to Quincy. Route 3 through Braintree and Weymouth is also slow. Well, it'll be cloudy tonight with temps in the upper 40s. Sunny tomorrow will see a high around 68 degrees. Then it looks like the sun will stick around through the long weekend. Saturday, temps in the mid-70s. Sunday, the high should reach the low 80s. Memorial Day, Monday, bright skies with temperatures in the upper 70s. It's 66 degrees in Boston. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by HBO. Sydney Sweeney stars in the new HBO original film Reality, based on the story of Reality Winner, who went from working for the NSA to being interrogated by the FBI. Premieres Monday at 10 p.m. on Max. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. President Biden and House Republicans are finally saying they're making progress in their talks to lift the debt ceiling. Here's Biden. Speaker McCarthy and I have had several productive conversations, and our staffs continue to meet as we speak, as a matter of fact, and they're making progress. But the clock is ticking, and it's not yet clear they'll make a deal in time to avert a default. And House lawmakers are on the verge of leaving town for the Memorial Day holiday weekend. It's all raising alarms for credit rating agencies. One has said that it could end up downgrading the country's rating because of all the political rancor. Joining us now are NPR's congressional correspondent, Claudia Grisales, and NPR's Scott Horsley, who follows the economy. Hi, you two. Hey there. Good to be with you. So, Claudia, let's start with you. It sounds like we are maybe starting to see some signs of momentum toward a deal, but 
How close are the two sides, really? They are still a good ways from putting pen to paper. We've seen a shift among the negotiators. They're not talking to us, the reporters, as much as they were a few days ago when they complained. There was no urgency on behalf of the White House. Now they say that urgency is there, and they're spending a lot more time behind closed doors. For example, they met for about four hours at the White House yesterday. This marks one of their longest meetings yet. President Biden said Republicans have turned down White House offers to install new programs to generate $3 trillion in new revenues. Democrats have said that included closing tax loopholes, such as as, uh, installing new minimum tax requirements for billionaires and corporations as part of the talks. And I did ask House Speaker Kevin McCarthy about this. He said the focus should not be on revenue, that Democrats have a spending problem, and a deal should focus on spending cuts. We have to spend less than we spent last year. It is not my fault that the Democrats cannot give up on their spending. It's not a revenue problem. It's a spending problem. Scott, is McCarthy right about that, that the problem is government spending, not a revenue problem? Well, it's both. Uh, Spending outstrips revenue every year, and that's why we're running deficits and the debt keeps piling up. Uh, Part of the problem is that after the GOP tax cut in 2017, revenue as a share of GDP fell while spending did not. And then in 2020, when the pandemic hit, spending soared even higher. Now, spending has since come down as a share of GDP, but we're still spending more than we collect in taxes. Uh, As you hear, Speaker McCarthy insists Republicans won't look at raising revenue to close that gap. They're determined to do it all on the spending side. But they've also said Social Security, Medicare, and defense spending are off limits. And that's more than half the federal budget. Uh, Social Security and Medicare are also where much of the growth in spending is coming from as Americans get older. But that's not a part of these negotiations. Uh, The piece they are focused on, discretionary non-defense spending, is only about 16 percent of the federal budget. So even if you make deep cuts in that narrow slice of the pie, it's pretty hard to put much of a dent in the debt. I mean, Scott, we keep talking about this, it seems like every day this week, but it is true. We really are approaching the date when the U.S. could run out of money. How nervous are our markets getting here? A little bit nervous. Uh, The Fitch Bond Rating Agency sounded a warning yesterday saying it's putting U.S. bonds on credit watch for a possible downgrade. Now, Fitch still thinks it's unlikely the U.S. will default on its debts or miss any other payments that are coming due, but the risk has gone up. Uh, This is mostly a commentary on the country's political situation, not the economic outlook. Uh, Fitch cited increased partisanship, brinkmanship over the debt limit, and the failure of political leaders to meaningfully tackle the country's mid-range fiscal challenges. Uh, Now, you can see how the bond markets are handicapping this. Uh, Investors are wary about holding U.S. government bonds that come due in just the next few weeks, when this could all come to a head. But people are still happy to hold longer-term debt from the U.S. government. I mean, Claudia, this deadline is looming. Congress, as we noted, is about to head out on recess. Does that mean that progress is done until they get back to the Capitol? Negotiators would say not at all. Speaker McCarthy has said that his uh, folks who are representing him in these talks will be working 24-7. So they, along with White House negotiators, will be the ones to watch. McCarthy's trying to make some difficult deadlines. He wants the House to have 72 hours to review the deal before they vote on a related bill. And the Senate, which comes back Tuesday, needs time to vote as well. So even though we don't have the contours of a deal yet, 
even when we do, the devil is in the details. We often don't know the chances of getting passage on such bills until the text is released and there's actual votes. So even if Biden and McCarthy get a bipartisan deal, it is not clear that enough of their members will buy it to pass it out of their chamber. So it will be quite the high wire act to pull this off in time to avoid a financial default. NPR's Claudia Grisales and Scott Horsley, thanks to both of you. You're welcome. You're welcome. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis made his presidential run official yesterday, and next week he'll go to Iowa. That state's caucuses still kick off the primary calendar for Republicans. Iowa Public Radio's Clay Masters reports DeSantis joins a growing field of candidates trying to snag an early win over former President Donald Trump. As Ron DeSantis wraps up his big announcement on Twitter, dozens of Iowa voters gather at a machine and supply company in Sioux City. DeSantis isn't the only Republican to announce a White House bid this week. That's why these voters are here to see South Carolina Senator Tim Scott. I wish he would run, and now he's here. Retired music teacher Myra Nelson is excited to be here. She hopes Scott catches on. I was for Donald Trump, but if he gets in, it's just going to be the same thing again. A lot of slander, a lot of news, bad news about him. We need someone fresh and someone with good, solid ideas. Hello, Iowa! Scott doesn't bring up his competitors. Instead, he talks about the southern U.S. border, the fentanyl crisis, tells his story about growing up poor in a single-parent household, and criticizes Democrats, like when it comes to education. They're more interested in keeping those kids trapped in their schools and trapped out of their futures. And they're going to talk about the great opportunity party. Give a brother a break. Scott was well-received, but he's relatively unknown in a field where Donald Trump is the frontrunner. Other Republicans hope a win in Iowa could give them momentum to beat the former president, who has only made one trip to Iowa since announcing his third bid. DeSantis will make several stops here next week. He'll likely draw comparisons between Florida and Iowa, like he did in this state earlier this month. You know, sometimes people will, will say to me, they'll be like, Governor, why aren't other Republicans doing what you're doing in Florida? And I say they are doing it. And they say where? I say they're doing it in Iowa. And in the fact, state's importance is clear for those who support Trump and those who want to derail his candidacy. Special interest groups like the conservative Americans for Prosperity are beefing up staff to knock doors and make phone calls. Drew Klein is the director of its Iowa chapter. There's a lot to be thankful for among the the GOP voters for policies that Trump helped implement when he was the president. But that doesn't really do us any good if he can't win a general election again. Voter and residential builder Kenon Davis favors DeSantis. I think that DeSantis is coming in cleaner. Uh, I think there's a there's a very strong opportunity that he could he could win a lot of the voters that simply just have disdain towards Trump. Davis's wife Chi, a real estate agent, hasn't made up her mind. For me, I'm still shopping around, so I want to hear all the candidates. The couple were invited to meet Mike Pence at a small backyard house party in Des Moines this week, where the former vice president chatted poolside and took photos with voters. Would you do me the honor of a photograph? Come on. My old sweetheart here is going to take the shot. Pence is expected to announce his bid early next month. As he wraps up his speech, he tells the crowd to take their job seriously as first-in-the-nation voters. Ask the hard questions. Shape the leadership. And whatever role my little family and I end up playing in the days ahead, I know Iowa is going to give us a standard bearer. 
Republicans in this field can take some lessons from history. Even though Trump won Iowa in 2016 and 2020, he came in second in the caucuses when he first ran nearly eight years ago. For NPR News, I'm Clay Masters in Des Moines. The forecast for the 2023 Atlantic hurricane season is in. Federal scientists are expecting a near-normal number of storms, but normal does not mean good. NPR's Rebecca Hersher explains why. There are between 12 and 17 named storms predicted, which includes both tropical storms and hurricanes. About half will be full-blown hurricanes, forecasters expect. That's close to normal, but a normal hurricane season is still a very dangerous hurricane season. Rick Spinrad leads the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. It's time to prepare. Remember, it only takes one storm to devastate a community. Last year was the poster child for this. It was very quiet throughout the summer, and then Hurricane Ian came barreling in and devastated Florida. And that's after multiple years of back-to-back storms hitting the U.S. In fact, this is the first time in eight years that NOAA hasn't predicted an above-average hurricane season. So that's a bit of good news. But it also means that there are many, many places where people are still trying to rebuild from a past storm while also preparing for this hurricane season. Deanne Criswell leads the Federal Emergency Management Agency, FEMA. Anytime we have a community that is still going through a recovery from a previous storm, it just makes them that much more vulnerable. This year's forecast also has extra uncertainty baked into it, scientists say. That's because of a strange confluence of events in the Atlantic. On one hand, the climate pattern known as El Nino will almost certainly begin in the coming months. El Nino causes wind conditions in the Atlantic that disrupt storms, so fewer hurricanes. But climate change is causing the ocean water to heat up. Right now, the water in the Atlantic is abnormally warm and will stay that way this summer. And warmer water helps hurricanes form. So, more hurricanes. Matthew Rosencrantz is NOAA's lead hurricane season forecaster. That is definitely kind of a rare setup for this year. When we looked at it, we were like, wow, this is, there's a lot of uncertainty this year in the outlook. Which is another reason to prepare for hurricane season, no matter what the numbers say. That includes making a plan for evacuating and for prolonged power outages. Rebecca Hersher, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Thanks for choosing 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 15 minutes on All Things Considered, the prison sentence handed down today for former Oath Keepers leader Stuart Rhodes for his role in the January 6th insurrection. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Sunbug Solar, helping to grow renewable energy in Massachusetts since 2009. To learn about solar energy employment opportunities, visit sunbugsolar.com. And Ocean State Job Lot, partnering with customers to help animal welfare organizations throughout the Northeast, oceanstatejoblot.com. On Wall Street today, the Dow lost 0.1 percent, the S&P went up 0.9 percent, and NASDAQ gained 1.7 percent. In area business news, Rhode Island's attorney general is suing the manufacturers of so-called forever chemicals. Attorney General Peter Nerona says companies engaged in what he calls a massive campaign to knowingly deceive the public. 
The chemicals known as PFAS have been linked to cancer and other health problems. They're called forever chemicals because they do not degrade. Massachusetts has taken similar action against manufacturers. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include the Boston Foundation. Knowing it will take all of us to improve lives and strengthen communities, the Boston Foundation partners with leaders, movers, and changemakers to close opportunity gaps, advance equity, and power a better Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. Skies will be mostly cloudy tonight and temps will dip to the upper 40s. Tomorrow, bright and sunny again. We'll have temperatures in the upper 60s. Then lots of sun and even warmer for the holiday weekend. We'll have highs in the mid-70s on Saturday, low 80s on Sunday. Then it looks like it'll be around 78 degrees, bright and sunny and beautiful for Memorial Day Monday. It's 66 degrees in Boston. You're listening to 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. And from The Nature Conservancy, partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises, committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive nature.org slash solutions. This is NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Kids in the U.S. are now getting two-thirds of their calories from ultra-processed foods. It's a trend that's been going up over the last two decades, and obesity rates among kids are climbing too. As part of our series Living Better, NPR's Maria Godoy has been looking into the health concerns raised by this kind of diet and what parents can do about it. Maria, how surprising is it that two-thirds of what kids eat these days is ultra-processed? Well, it's surprising and it isn't because if you consider one recent study found that 73% of the U.S. food supply is ultra-processed, then it starts to seem almost inevitable that's what our kids are eating. And this really cuts across socioeconomic lines. Whatever their parents' income or education level, kids are eating this stuff a lot. How do you define ultra-processed? What does that actually mean? So a lot of food is processed. So you think canned tuna or smoked meat, fruit and syrup, and that's actually not what we're talking about. Ultra-processed foods are the product of industrial food manufacturing. So they include ingredients like hydrogenated oils, emulsifiers, flavor enhancers. They make the food taste good and last longer. It's food that's cheap, convenient, and everywhere, as I recently saw when I went shopping in your typical American grocery store with Allison Silvetsky. She is a nutrition researcher at George Washington University. Her work focuses on obesity and diabetes in kids. Okay, take us there. Let's listen to some of your reporting. 2.59. When we walk into the store, the fresh produce section is front and center. Here we go. But the bulk of the store is filled with row upon row of packaged foods. As we go through the aisles of the store, a large proportion of the foods are would be considered ultra-processed. Just pick up a product and read the ingredient list. Hydrolyzed protein isolates, high fructose corn syrup, colorings, bulking agents, added sugars. These are all telltale signs of ultra-processed food. Sometimes they can appear in places you might not expect them, like a package of tortilla chips I spot on the shelf. Sugar, huh? Why would you add sugar to tortilla chips? Onion powder, vinegar powder, maltodextrin. What's maltodextrin? 
It is usually used as a bulking agent. Um, mm. It is a filler in a lot of things to help with the texture of foods, and yeah, it's a bulking agent. Solvetsky says that just because a food is ultra-processed doesn't necessarily mean it's unhealthy. But in general, ultra-processed foods tend to be high not just in calories, but also sugar, fat, and sodium, which helps make these foods irresistible. They're so good. They're designed to taste good, and that's why it's hard for people not to eat them. But a growing body of evidence has linked overconsumption of ultra-processed foods to poor health outcomes in adults. Dr. Fengfeng Zhang is a nutritional epidemiologist at Tufts University. Data showed increased risk of hypertension, type 2 diabetes, and obesity among adults, and mortality from cardiovascular disease. In fact, she says research has linked eating too much ultra-processed food to a higher risk of dying prematurely from all causes. The evidence are pretty strong and consistent. But what's not clear is why. What is it about ultra-processed food that drives these poor health outcomes? Is it just because they are usually high in salt, sugar, and fat? Or is it something about the processing itself? That is the question Kevin Hall wanted to answer. He studies obesity and diabetes at the National Institutes of Health. And so we decided to try to investigate this by designing two diets that were matched in terms of their salt, sugar, fat, and fiber, as well as overall carbs. Um, But in one case was coming 80% of calories from ultra-processed foods, and the other case, 80% of calories from minimally processed foods and no ultra-processed foods. 20 people spent a month living at NIH. They ate one diet for two weeks, then they switched to the other. They were allowed to eat as much as they wanted. The results surprised Hall. I had sort of expected, because the diets were matched for all these nutrients of concern, there wouldn't be any difference. People would basically eat the same number of calories, basically maintain their usual weight. But in fact, people on the ultra-processed diet ate 500 calories more per day on average, and they gained weight. When they switched to the unprocessed diet, They basically just spontaneously lost weight and lost body fat. The findings were considered landmark. They strongly suggest it's not just the salt, sugar, and fat, but something about the highly processed nature of the food itself that propels people to overeat. Researchers still aren't sure exactly what is going on, but many agree there's something there. Now, when it comes to kids, the evidence is more limited, but childhood dietary habits often carry over into adulthood, So experts say cutting back on how much ultra-processed foods kids are eating now can help set them up for better health over the long haul. Maria, if ultra-processed food is everywhere and tempting to snack on, what can parents or anybody who wants to cut back on ultra-processed food do? The most important thing is to learn how to recognize it. And that means reading the ingredient list. If there are ingredients that you really, truly don't recognize, that's a sign it's ultra-processed. And sometimes you just have to compare packages. So if you're buying tortillas, one might have corn, lime, and salt, and the other one might have a whole list of emulsifiers and stabilizers. Personally, I go for the corn, lime, and salt. Researchers at Northeastern actually created a pretty nifty database called truefood.tech that lets you browse for food items to see how processed they are, and it even suggests less processed alternatives. What if ultra-processed foods are the only option? Some people don't have easy access to stores with lots of fresh ingredients, or fresh foods can be more expensive. 
Right. Well, you can make healthier choices even in the ultra-processed category. So for instance, if you're buying packaged bread, go for whole grain. It's high in fiber and lower in sugar, and that's going to be better than white. Or with breakfast cereals, again, look for low sugar, high fiber, and high protein because that still matters. Or, you know, if you buy canned beans and they're high in sodium, rinse them off with tap water to flush out the extra salt. And if you have really young kids, you can actually head some of this off from the get-go by trying to get them used to tastes that aren't so sweet. Because a lot of packaged food aimed at kids is super sweet, and that's kind of how they get you. So you're saying it might not be necessary to completely eliminate ultra-processed food from our diets altogether? I don't think that's realistic for most people. I would say try to focus more on what you should be eating, fruits and vegetables, fresh or frozen, because frozen is often cheaper and it is just as nutritious and lasts longer. But you really don't have to be perfect all the time. In fact, one of the best bits of advice I heard was from Christopher Gardner. He's a nutrition researcher at Stanford University, and he says he likes to follow a rule his favorite chef um, coined, like the 80-20 rule. She chooses very intentionally 80% of the time and 20% of the time she has fun with food because food brings us joy. And she goes off the rails if she wants for that 20% because 80% of the time she eats really well. So you do want to aim for a better balance between ultra processed and minimally or unprocessed food. But to start, maybe just focus on a few small changes because that can add up over time. NPR's Maria Godoy, thank you. Thanks, Ari. This is NPR News. And thanks for spending your afternoon with us here at 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 15 minutes, the young Boston band Q-Tip Bandits psyched to share their music with old and new fans at the Boston Calling Festival this weekend. Well, taking a look at the forecast, it'll be mostly cloudy tonight with temperatures in the upper 40s. Then sunshine tomorrow and through the holiday weekend. It looks beautiful. Temps in the upper 60s tomorrow, about 75 degrees Saturday. Sunday should reach the low 80s. And then Memorial Day Monday, again, bright sunny skies with temps in the upper 70s. You're listening to 90.9 WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, announcing Xfinity 10G Network so everyone at home can be online, even peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now. And Boston Ballet's The Sleeping Beauty, on stage now through June 4th at the Citizens Bank Opera House. Tickets at bostonballet.org. The British songwriter Arlo Parks sings of her depression. She says it helps. Getting used to the fact that things don't go to plan and the universe deals you blows that you would never expect and gives you beautiful moments that you would never expect. Putting mental health into music. Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WB1. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. The Treasury Department says Congress has about one week to raise the federal debt limit or run out of cash to pay its bills. 
Some personal finance experts are advising people to prepare for an economic downturn now. Here's NPR's Arizu Rezvani. If the U.S. defaults on its debt, the cost of borrowing money would soar, making it harder for everyone to buy homes, cars, or pay off credit card debts, which would send a chill through the U.S. economy. That's why personal finance experts like Anna Hilhoski of NerdWallet are advising people to prepare for a possible worst-case scenario. We're advising people to prepare for a potential default as you would for an impending recession. Under a debt default, millions of Americans could see their benefits and payments suspended. Combined with a spike in interest rates, people could pull back on spending. So could businesses, increasing the likelihood of layoffs, all hallmarks of a recession. Arizu Rezvani, NPR News, Los Angeles. Russia has signed a deal paving the way for the deployment of Moscow's tactical nuclear weapons on the territory of its ally, Belarus. Although control of the weapons will remain with the Kremlin. From Moscow, NPR's Charles Maines has more. The defense ministers of Russia and Belarus formally endorsed the deployment. Under the agreement, Russia will maintain full control over non-strategic nuclear weapons stationed in Belarus. Russian President Vladimir Putin announced his intention to deploy tactical nukes in Belarus in March, calling it a response to the U.S. housing similar weapons among its European allies. Tactical nuclear weapons such as bombs and short-range missiles are intended to destroy enemy troops and weapons on the battlefield Russia has used Belarus as a staging ground for invading neighboring Ukraine. And Moscow has maintained a contingent of troops as well as weapons there. Stocks finished mixed today on Wall Street. The Dow lost 35 points, down one-tenth of a percent. This is NPR. And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. The head of Boston's reparations task force has been fired after being arrested. According to a city spokesperson, George Williams' contract was terminated. Police say Williams was arrested last Thursday night for trespassing inside Boston City Hall. The reparations task force was established by the city council and appointed by the mayor to study the legacy of slavery in Boston and recommend reparations for black residents. This afternoon, there are more than 2,500 new graduates of UMass Boston. As WBUR's Max Larkin reports, they were recognized at today's ceremony for their diversity. Chancellor Marcello Suarez Orozco showcased this year's class, 130 countries represented, 70 languages spoken, 60% first-generation college students. If you are the first person in your family to earn a college degree, please rise and be recognized. Commencement speaker Senator Elizabeth Warren told graduates to continue fighting in this time of political and ecological crisis. Surely you face more challenges than most any graduating class in history. And yet I am here today to counsel Choose Hope. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Max Larkin. The MBTA reports it's making progress on blue line track repairs. General Manager Phil Eng says nine speed restrictions have been eliminated over the past month and a half. There are still 14 restrictions on the blue line from East Boston into Revere. There are six stretches of track where trains cannot safely exceed 10 miles an hour. It's 434. WBUR supporters include the Masters in Applied Economics at Boston College, offering an industry-aligned degree that can help drive better organizational and business decisions. bc.edu slash msae. Well, beautiful weather on tap for the upcoming weekend. First, tonight will be cloudy. The low will be in the upper 40s, then lots of sunshine tomorrow. 
It'll be really pleasant with temperatures around 68 degrees. Saturday, sunny skies again with temps in the mid-70s. It'll be warmer Sunday in the low 80s with more sunshine. And then Monday, Memorial Day, a picturesque day for a parade or ceremony. It'll be sunny in the upper 70s. You're listening to 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. It's the longest punishment yet in a criminal case stemming from the Capitol riot. A judge has sentenced Stuart Rhodes, founder of the far-right group The Oath Keepers, to spend 18 years in prison for seditious conspiracy, a rare charge that has roots in the Civil War. Rhodes used his moment in the spotlight to cast himself as a political prisoner and vowed to appeal. NPR Justice Correspondent Kerry Johnson is at the federal courthouse here in Washington. Hi, Kerry. Hi, Ari. Big day in court. How did the judge arrive at this punishment for Stuart Rhodes? Judge Amit Mehta says in all the years he's been doing this, he's never seen a defendant like Stuart Rhodes. The judge looked right at Rhodes in the courtroom and said, you, sir, present an ongoing threat and peril to the country and to the very fabric of democracy. The judge talked about how Stuart Rhodes is a lawyer, that he's smart and charismatic, and that he prompted uh, dozens of people, rather, to come to the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. And that's what makes Rhodes dangerous, the judge said. Now, even before January 6th, Rhodes was promoting political violence. And after the violence at the Capitol that day, Rhodes suggested hanging the then House Speaker by a lamppost. And even since then, since he's been behind bars and been convicted of seditious conspiracy, the judge says Stuart Rhodes has alluded to violence, political violence, even as recently as a few days ago. Rhodes is known to be talkative, and he had a say today, too. Tell us about it. Yeah, Stuart Rhodes stood up. He was wearing an orange prison jumpsuit, and he cast himself as a political prisoner. He says he felt like a character in a Franz Kafka novel. He compared himself to a Soviet-era dissident who spent years in a forced labor camp. Rhodes basically said from prison, however long it would be, he would work to, quote, expose the criminality of the government, uh, meaning, I guess, the Biden administration. And Stuart Rhodes is going to be in prison for a long time, or he's in his late 50s. And if his appeal is not successful, he's not going to get out for well over a decade. As we said, it's the longest sentence of anyone convicted in the siege on the U.S. Capitol. Should others who have been charged in the investigation look at this judge's decision and worry? You know, this is very serious business. We've seen sentences of 10 years and 14 years already for some rioters who were convicted of attacking police. But this judge said sedition is perhaps the most serious offense an American can commit against their own government. And this 18-year sentence for Stuart Rhodes could have some implications for Enrique Tarrio. He's the former leader of the far-right Proud Boys, also convicted of sedition this year. Tarrio's going to be sentenced in late August. 
But where all this goes from here is hard to say right now. Remember that former President Donald Trump, who's running again for the White House, says he's going to consider pardons for, quote, a large portion of the January 6th defendants, and he's used them as rhetorical devices in his political campaign. Whether Stuart Rhodes and Enrique Tarrio are in that category, hard to say right now. Just briefly, some of the people who lived through the insurrection described their experience. Can you give us a snapshot of what they said? Very emotional testimony. Police officers saying their bruises have healed, but the emotional trauma lingers. Other officers saying they used to love to go to work, not anymore. And a woman who was the chief of staff to then House Speaker Nancy Pelosi talked about her, how her staff cowered in fear for hours on January 6th. She said the defendants violated our workplace, our government, and our democracy, but they did not succeed. Democracy succeeded. That is NPR's Carrie Johnson. Thank you so much. Thank you. In 1989, the Walt Disney Company released one of its last hand-drawn feature films, The Little Mermaid. Under the sea, under the sea. A classic Disney princess story, it was a throwback to early Disney in many ways. A fairy tale filled with songs and romance. Now, Ariel and her pals have been given a live-action makeover. Critic Bob Mondello says the new Little Mermaid is a throwback, too. You loved Ariel as a kid, when she was a two-dimensional mermaid who yearned to be up on the surface. I want to be where the people are. I want to see Wanna see them dancing? And you wonder, will you love her again in the flesh, as it were? Well, filmmaker Rob Marshall and star Halle Bailey make that part easy. Bailey's voice is gorgeous, and her presence lovely, with presumably digital hair bobbing underwater, eyes sparkling, scales glistening. Ariel will be tested when she rescues a hunky prince from a shipwreck and falls for him while he's unconscious. Maybe his best look, actually. Ariel's companion, Sebastian the Crab, knows King Triton will disapprove and suspects that their gull pal Scuttle will not be much help. Are you listening to me? Yes. uh... You won't tell him. I won't tell him. And I will stay in one piece. You got it? Got it. Sorry, what'd you say again? I'm a dead crab. They're voiced by David Diggs and Aquafina, respectively, while Ariel's devious Aunt Ursula, the sea witch, is played in full octopus drag with eight glow-in-the-dark tentacles by Melissa McCarthy. Come on, you functioning soul! Go ahead! Make your choice! I'm a very busy woman, and I haven't got all day! It won't cost much! Just your voice. So far, so familiar as the director duplicates scenes and camera moves in photorealistic fashion. He's mostly substituting digital animation for hand-drawn here, so calling the film live action is a stretch, but give the studio its concept. There are things you can't unsee, like Javier Bardem's tummy undulations when he flicks his tail as King Triton, and things that take more time when you need them to look real. The new film is almost an hour longer than the old one. But there are also new Alan Menken songs with Lin-Manuel Miranda nicely reflecting the late Howard Ashman's taste for rhyme-happy lyrics. Everything's clearer and 
brighter and hotter But now that I'm here like a fish out of water I'm trying to stand but this gravity's pulling me down Where the first film had a mostly European feel, apart from Sebastian's Caribbean accent, the filmmakers have set this one firmly in the Caribbean, and Island Kingdom, that a bit of dialogue establishes, was once a trade hub explaining a populace that's as multicultural as the audience Disney is hoping to attract. The Queen is black, Prince Eric isn't, he's white, but he's adopted, and there are Asian, Latino, and indigenous faces everywhere, including underwater, where ethnic diversity establishes that Ariel and her six sisters have each come from one of the seven seas. In short, at least as much thought has been put into making this new version inclusive as into imagining how dancing seahorses might look in a photorealistic world. Watch this. You can admire all the hard work and still wonder whether this particular vehicle justifies the effort. In 1989, the cartoon Little Mermaid, coming after three decades of mediocre animation, ushered in a Disney renaissance that soon produced Beauty and the Beast, Lion King, and Aladdin. All of those have subsequently gotten live-action makeovers, so this Little Mermaid isn't going to usher in anything besides a lot of money. I'm Bob Mandela. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lynn Jolliker, in for Lisa Mullins. There's a rare chance for Boston's local bands to shine with music industry titans. It's the Boston Calling Music Festival, and it's back this weekend, with the Foo Fighters, the Lumineers, and Paramore headlining. WBUR's Jacob Garcia introduces us to a hometown favorite that's excited to share the stage. They're called the Q-Tip Bandits. They're a group of 20-something-year-olds that make fun, energetic music. It's really a reflection of their personalities, which includes some colorful language from its singer, Leo Sun. I curse like a sailor. It's really a problem. (laughs) Sun's music and the band's weekend plans are anything but. That's him on guitar. Claire Davis does vocals and plays bass. Here's Dakota May Krantz on drums. And what really sets them apart? Maglin Tucker's trumpet and Hoyt Parkett's trombone. The Q-Tip Bandit sound is a fusion of indie pop, rock, funk, and soul. Sun hopes their music can be there for listeners the same way other artists have been there for him. Music was like my way of connecting with something when I didn't connect with the people around me. It was my way of having artists that sang songs that made me feel not alone when I felt alone in the rest of my life. The band met while studying at Berklee College of Music in 2017. Sun grew up in greater Boston, but his bandmates, like Claire Davis, are newer to the area. I remember moving here and seeing Boston Calling posters and just like the Boston Calling name everywhere. The idea of playing a big festival like Boston Calling would call to Davis and her bandmates for years. But it's taken time. We have been growing steadily each year and each year and playing the shows to, you know, five people, then 15 people, then 25, 100, you know. And their dream came true when a Boston Calling rep called to confirm their slot in this year's lineup. It was just like, I I need to tell people. I need to tell my closest friends. I need to tell my parents that this is happening. It was just like an excitement I could not contain. For a lot of local bands, performing at Boston Calling is considered the goal. 
For the Q-Tip Bandits, whose music radiates good vibes, it was a manifestation. Leo, he, he told me very early on, like, in five years, like, we're going to be on that lineup. And, you know, I was like, oh, yeah, cool. Yeah, totally. And it, little did we know, five years later, he knew, I guess. Leo knew. Their upcoming performance wouldn't be possible if they didn't take community so seriously. They make it a point to let their fans know how valued they are. Even if it's as simple as, like, getting back to a comment on social media, it's something that takes less than a minute, but it's it's effort. And... It really is about just, like, building this this family. And the effort's paying off, even when they tour outside of Boston. We go to New York now, and I'm like, the last time we played there, I was like, this feels like a Boston show. When did this happen? The Q-Tip Bandits wrapped up a cross-country tour in March, and will hit their five-year goal on Saturday when they take on the stage at Boston Calling. But the group hopes it's just the beginning. It's not like the journey's over because we achieved this goal. It's like, well, hell. You put in this work to make it clear that there's something worth sharing. You best be ready to, like, fully dive in. Because what else really is there? (laughs) The band released a new single this week titled Tiptoe. It's the start of a new chapter for the Q-Tip Bandits that'll focus on recording new music for their next EP. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Jacob Garcia. Boston Calling starts tomorrow afternoon and runs through Sunday at the Harvard Athletic Complex. Q-Tip Bandits will perform Saturday at 2.20. Check out our coverage of the festival this weekend at WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bass, Berry, and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com. And Babson, top-ranked in entrepreneurship by U.S. News and World Report, Babson's MBA prepares you to tackle global challenges. Babson.edu slash MBA. You're listening to 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 15 minutes on All Things Considered, Ukraine's next big move against Russia and new measures to reduce heat-related deaths among unsheltered and elderly people in the Phoenix area. Well, it's hard to complain about this holiday weekend forecast. It'll be cloudy tonight with temps in the upper 40s. Sunny tomorrow will see a high around 68 degrees, then sun through the weekend, mid-70s on Saturday, low 80s Sunday, and Memorial Day Monday, upper 70s. This is 90.9 WBUR. WBUR supporters include La Cuchara Cafe in Melrose, offering modern Latin American fare in a new food truck available for catering and events. Online booking at lacuchara.com. Hey, this is Steve Inskeep with NPR News, reminding you that your public radio station is a service, and the people who use that service are the largest single source of support for that service. Your old car can play a role It can help pay for the producers, editors, and audio engineers and others who create Morning Edition every day. Your old car can do that. Here's how. Learn more at wbur.org slash cars. 
This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Today at the White House, President Biden selected Air Force General C.Q. Brown to be the next chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the most senior member of the U.S. military. When General Brown is chairman, I know I'll be able to rely on his advice as a military strategist and as a leader of military innovation, dedicated to keeping our armed forces the best in the world. Brown is a combat-tested F-16 pilot with four decades of experience, known in defense circles for his innovative military strategy. Outside the service, he's best known for public remarks about race in the military, as NPR's Quill Lawrence reports. CQ Brown has flown thousands of hours as a fighter pilot, including 130 hours in combat, and once parachuting out of a jet that caught fire after a suspected lightning strike. He's credited with changing the tactics that helped defeat the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria. But that, like all the wars since Korea, was a battlefield where the U.S. had complete control of the air. In 2021, he told the National Press Club that wouldn't always be the case. China's armed forces will be uh, fully modernized by 2035 and be world-class by 2050. China continues to move that modernization timeline left with its rate of change outpacing the United States. To adapt, Brown has pushed for the military to streamline its bureaucracy and also increase recruitment by attracting Americans from more diverse backgrounds. Brown was the first black man to lead a branch of the military as Air Force chief. And in 2020, he felt compelled to speak publicly about race. Think about how full I am with emotion, not just for George Floyd, but the many African-Americans that have suffered the same fate as George Floyd. George Floyd's death at the hands of police had sparked nationwide protests, and CQ Brown put out this video despite his pending nomination by the Trump administration for Air Force chief. I'm thinking about protests in my country, tis in the sweet land of liberty, the equality expressed in our Declaration of Independence and the Constitution that I've sworn my adult life to support and defend. And thinking about a history of, of racial issues and my own experiences that didn't always sing of liberty and equality. Brown's video was widely shared on social media. Just four days later, he was confirmed 98 to 0 by the Senate. Today, President Biden said he'd rely on Brown to be unafraid to speak his mind and do the right thing when it's hard. Quill Lawrence, NPR News. 18-year-old Iam Tongi has had an incredible week. The winner of American Idol 2023 is Iam Tongi! Not only did Tongi win the 21st season of American Idol, he also became the first Pacific Islander to do so. And Iam Tongi is here now to talk with us about his big win. Hey, welcome. Uh, Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Uh, Good to be here. Well, I've got to start off with some congratulations to you. How are you feeling about everything? I feel like it still hasn't hit me, hit me yet. And uh, I still need a... You'll get it in my mind that I actually won. <laughs> During the final episode, you performed an original song. It's called I'll Be Seeing You. All wit, all of the lies, you're stay in my, stay in my mind for all of time. First of all, it's just an incredible beautiful song and the person that you're talking to there the person that you'll be seeing is your dad Rodney who unfortunately passed away a short time before you auditioned for American Idol a few months before I I have to imagine he just would have been so proud of you for all you've accomplished uh thank you and uh hopefully I think he would be if you could could you tell us a little bit about who your dad Rodney was and how he instilled 
such a love of music in you? Yeah, my dad, he's a Tongan and Samoan. You know, growing up in Hawaii, I listened to a lot of island music. And my dad influenced my music by showing me, from a very young age, he used to play, like, Keith Urban's live CD three times or, like, four times a day. And uh, after I learned ukulele, he pushed me to learn guitar and pushed me to start singing. And uh, I owe everything to my dad because if if my dad never pushed me, then I wouldn't be here right now. Your mom has shared that when your dad passed away, you didn't want to sing anymore because you kept hearing your dad back you up. What brought you back to singing? Uh, <laughs> my mom just signed me up on, uh, and then she was telling me to practice. And I told her there's no need for me to practice because like the only reason why I did it was for my dad. She was like, well, I signed you up for American Idol. I was telling her, I don't want to do it. And she was like, too late, I already did. I was like, oh, shoot. <laughs> so that really got me up to try out. And uh, I'm glad I did. I want to talk for a minute about your audition. You performed the James Blunt song, Monsters, and you dedicated your performance of that song to your father. I'm not your son. You're not my father. Wedges to grow saying goodbye. I watched that video earlier today before this conversation, and I was tearing up at my desk. It left judges and audiences in tears. You were incredible. The song is incredible. You have this amazing story to share. How did you pick that song? When I went to the audition, my mom asked me, like, what do you think about Monsters? And at first, I wasn't really open to the idea because every single time I sing that song, you know, I get emotional. Or it's hard for me to, like, finish it. I wasn't going to do it, but then I was thinking about it and I just wanted to dedicate it to my dad because... All, all that I have to him and, and my mom. I mean, you got off to an incredible start on your season, but as any dedicated watcher of American Idol knows, there's never a perfect journey. Um, what was the toughest moment for you during the competition? Probably Hollywood week, because that's, that's when I was, like, first introduced to, like, this schedule, right? You know, waking up early and coming home late. So I lost my voice before the duet. And I was so, like, frustrated. And uh, when I went on the stage, my guitar broke. Oh, gosh. I just was trying to hold it together, and it went on the stage. And right when they asked me, like, what's wrong, I just uh, started crying. My dad spent his holiday paycheck to buy me the guitar. And I, I well, made a promise that I was going to use it on every performance. You are the first Hawaiian and Pacific Islander to win American Idol. What does it mean to you to be the first? Um, You know, it means a lot to me to be the first. I don't want to, like, sound cocky, but, like, pave the way, yeah, for my people to just do what they love and have no fear because I didn't want to do it because I didn't want to get embarrassed. That's how my people are. They, they're very prideful. And I just want them to get out that mindset. And if you do something you love, you can succeed if you try your best. That's Ian Tongi, the latest winner of American Idol. Good luck, and I really look forward to getting to listen to the music you make. Thank you so much.
Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. From Total Wine and More, where in-store teams can recommend a Chardonnay, sparkling wine, or tequila for any occasion. Learn more at TotalWine.com. Spirits not available in Virginia or North Carolina. And from Mattress Firm, dedicated to providing personalized service with the goal of helping people achieve quality sleep. Customers can shop their range of products in-store or online at mattressfirm.com. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 20 minutes, remembering the legendary Tina Turner. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School. Ranked by U.S. News & World Report as best in New England for primary care education. Learn more at umassmed.edu. And Walden Local Meat partnering with local Northeast farmers to hand-deliver 100% grass-fed, pasture-raised meat right to your door. WaldenLocal.com. I'm reporter Deborah Becker, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The U.S. Supreme Court clamps down on the Clean Water Act, restricting the EPA's power over wetlands. I don't think it's an overstatement to say it's catastrophic for the Clean Water Act. It will remove protections for countless wetlands and and likely streams as well. The high court ruled in favor of Idaho landowners who challenged the law. It's Thursday, May 25th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon. I'm Lynn Jolliker, in for Lisa Mullins. We'll have local reaction to the ruling and Ukraine's latest counteroffensive against Russia as Pentagon officials meet with other nations supporting the war. Plus, the heat in Phoenix has become increasingly dangerous, especially for the unsheltered and the elderly. I was so sick because I was so hot and I, I, I just couldn't take the hot weather. New measures aim to reverse that trend after a record-setting number of deaths last year. It's 5.01. The news is first. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. President Biden says negotiations with House Republicans to avoid a debt default have been productive. But as NPR's Tamara Keith explains, there's no deal yet. Addressing the debt ceiling negotiations for the first time since Monday, President Biden once again laid out the White House position, publicly unchanged even as negotiations over potential compromises and spending cuts intensify. I made clear time and again defaulting on our national debt is not an option. The American people deserve to know that the Social Security payments will be there. The veterans' hospitals remain open. And that economic progress will be made, and we're going to continue to make it. Default puts all that at risk. Biden added that the only way forward is a bipartisan agreement, and he believes one will be reached. When and what will it entail? 
That's unclear. Tamara Keith, NPR News, the White House. The top U.S. military officer says Russia has no prospect of achieving its original military goals in Ukraine. But as NPR's Greg Myrie reports, General Mark Milley also says it will be difficult for Ukraine to drive all Russian troops out of the country. General Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, spoke at the Pentagon following a virtual meeting of some 50 Western nations that are supporting Ukraine. This war... Uh, militarily is not going to be won by Russia. It's just not. There are strategic objectives that they laid out, which was the conquest of the territory called Ukraine, the unseating of the Zelensky government, the capture of Kyiv. Those strategic objectives went away uh, a year ago, really, uh, shortly after they invaded. Yet the general also stressed that Ukraine will have a tough time pushing out all the Russian forces. It's possible, he said, but probably not in the near term. Greg Myrie, NPR News, Washington. A hardline sentence for Oath Keepers leader Stuart Rhodes on seditious conspiracy charges in connection with the January 6, 2021 attack on the U.S. Capitol. A judge sentencing the leader of the far-right militia group to 18 years in prison. Another Oath Keepers member, Kelly Meggs, was handed a 12-year sentence. Typhoon Mawar has hit Guam, making a mess of the U.S. territory and leaving some areas virtually unrecognizable. Landon Idlet is a chief meteorologist with the National Weather Service and described in a video briefing what he saw this morning after the storm made landfall. We are uh, waking up to a rather disturbing scene out there across Guam. We're looking out our door and what used to be a jungle looks like toothpicks. It looks like a scene from the movie Twister with trees just thrashed apart. While the typhoon that hit as a Category 4 storm is pulling away, heavy rain and wind gusts of over 100 miles an hour are still being reported in some areas. The storm dumped 14 inches of rain, much of Guam still without power today. A mixed close on Wall Street. The Dow was down 35 points. The Nasdaq gained 213 points today. You're listening to NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. Environmental advocates say some wetlands in Massachusetts will lose protections under today's U.S. Supreme Court ruling. Justices ruled the Clean Water Act cannot protect certain wetlands from development. Brad Campbell is the president of the Boston-based Conservation Law Foundation. He says around half of wetlands in the U.S. will become unprotected. Here in Massachusetts, we do have state wetlands protection laws that may fill part of the gap that's now been created by the Supreme Court. Campbell says state legislators could expand their laws to include federally unprotected waters. A plan to make naloxone available in MBTA stations is moving forward on Beacon Hill. The Senate is proposing to allocate $95,000 for boxes with the opioid overdose reversing drug in redline stations. So far, the House budget does not include funding. The program would start on the red line with the hope of expanding to other lines. Opioid overdose deaths reached a record high in Massachusetts and the U.S. during the pandemic. People with type 2 diabetes might want to exercise in the afternoon to improve their health. That's according to researchers at Brigham and Women's Hospital and the Joslin Diabetes Center. They found diabetics who were physically active in the afternoon reduced their blood sugar levels more than those who exercised at other times of day. Well, nervous Celtics fans are starting to gather near the Garden for Game 5 of the Eastern Conference Finals. For the second straight game, the Celtics will try to avoid elimination when they face the Miami Heat tonight. WBUR's Fausto Menard has a preview. The Celtics are hoping for a repeat performance of Tuesday night's game when they beat the Heat handily in South Florida. Boston still trails Miami three games to one, and no NBA team has ever won a seven-game series after losing the first three games like the Seas did. 
Celtics guard Marcus Smart says the team is taking things one game at a time. We understand, you know, um, the, the odds are stacked against us, but uh, we're a team that, that believes in us no matter what, and we just got to keep going, and all that matters is the next game. If the Celtics win tonight, these two teams will play again Saturday night in Miami. The winner of this series will play the Denver Nuggets for the NBA championship starting June 1st. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Fausto Menard. Skies will be mostly cloudy tonight. Temps will dip to the upper 40s, then bright and sunny the next several days through the holiday weekend. Temps in the upper 60s tomorrow. This is 90.9 WBUR. WBUR supporters include Ion Television, presenting the Scripps National Spelling Bee. The two-night event airs Wednesday, May 31st and Thursday, June 1st at 8, 7 central on Ion. Learn more at spellingbee.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Ukraine appears to have started its next big move against Russia. And Pentagon officials today held a meeting with other nations providing support for the war. Kyiv says it's steadfast in pushing Russia out of the country altogether. Let's begin our coverage with Joanna Kakissis, who is in eastern Ukraine. Joanna, tell us where you are and what you're hearing. I'm in the eastern city of Krematorsk. It's not far from the front line. It's about an hour's drive away from actually a very well-known part of the front line, and that's what remains of the city of Bakhmut. It's uh, right now not much of a city because it's just block after block of burning, destroyed buildings. Uh, Ukrainian forces have been defending Bakhmut for more than 10 months, but the Kremlin says its forces, along with private mercenaries, they've now captured all of it, and you know Ukraine is actually disputing that. Instead, the Ukrainians are saying, look, we are actually making gains outside and around the city. And they have suggested that these gains are related to the counteroffensive. Explain what that counteroffensive actually is. A top Ukrainian official said today that it has begun. What What is it? What does that mean? Good question. So today, Mikhailo Podolyak, who is an advisor to the head of President Zelensky's office, he said, you know, don't expect this big announcement at a specific time with a ribbon cutting to say, hey, the counteroffensive is here because he said like attacking Russian positions, ammunition stockpiles and infrastructure like rail lines or oil depots, he sees these as counteroffensive actions. And, you know, we heard roughly the same thing from special forces fighters and reconnaissance soldiers we met recently in the southern city of Kherson. They have spent weeks secretly crossing the Dnipro River into Russian-occupied territory to sabotage Russia's grip in the area and to lay the groundwork for larger military action. And here's one of those fighters. His name is Alex. He's speaking through a translator, and he only gave his first name for security reasons. We're waiting at any time for the commanders to tell us what will happen. Don't expect some World War II scene, like millions of soldiers swimming across the Dnipro River. Everything will happen like it's supposed to. And from Alex's perspective, the wheels of the counteroffensive have already started turning. Okay, let's take the wider view and bring in NPR Pentagon correspondent Tom Bowman, who's here in the studio. Tom, I mentioned that military officials from the U.S. and other nations supporting Ukraine met today. What came out of that? Well, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin and Joint Chiefs Chairman General Mark Milley met virtually with a contact group. That's some 50 nations assisting Ukraine. They focused on continued air defenses for Ukraine, and that's key to striking the Russian missiles and drones. And also, here's the thing, preventing the Russian Air Force from flying into Ukrainian airspace. And so far, Russian aircraft, and there were about a thousand of them, have mostly been firing 
from Russian territory and over the Black Sea. Russian tanks and armor have been hit hard during this invasion, but it says air force is still formidable. It would be devastating for Ukraine if Russia gained control of the sky. So that's why you have the air defenses. They also gave an update on F-16 warplanes in Ukraine. Ukrainian pilots will begin training in Europe, but those planes already won't arrive in time for this counteroffensive. Joanna, what are you hearing from Ukrainian officials about the ultimate goal here? The Ukrainians' biggest goal is very simple and very ambitious. They want to push Russian forces out of every inch of Ukrainian territory. Uh, President Zelensky is refusing to even consider peace talks with Russia unless that happens. And, and you know, some Ukrainian officials have an even bigger endgame, like Alexei Danilov, who's the head of Ukraine's National Security and Defense Council. He told NPR recently that he doesn't think Ukraine will truly be safe unless there is a breakup of the Russian Federation, because defeating President Vladimir Putin isn't enough. Uh, But the military strategists we spoke to, they say Ukraine's military is taking each battle one step at a time. And right now they're saying, let's try to liberate a little more of our land with this counteroffensive and then reassess after that. So if Ukraine would like to see Russia out of all of its territory, including the Donbass and Crimea, Tom, what do U.S. officials say? What are they hoping Ukraine reasonably accomplishes? Well, Ari, they're saying the best case scenario for Ukraine would be to cut that land bridge between Russia and occupied Crimea. That will be tough. The Russians are dug in with multiple lines of trenches and barriers. But as Joanna points out, you know, they're hitting the supplies, infrastructure, and that could leave these poorly trained and lightly armed Russian forces in a more vulnerable position. Now, as far as victory, what does that look like? Again, Ukraine wants all Russians out. The U.S. isn't willing to say that. I asked Secretary Austin today how he sees victory. Is it a decisive victory by Ukraine, or do you want to just offer enough help so Ukraine has a better hand at the negotiating table? Let's listen. So in terms of the goals and objectives of Ukraine's campaign, we'll let the Ukrainians decide what that will be. Our goal, as I've said so many times, is make sure that we're providing them what they need to defend uh, their sovereign territory. Provide them what they need. The U.S. seems to be taking a pattern of first saying no to weapons requests and then eventually saying yes. Right. From the start, the Biden administration has been playing this balancing act intent on aiding Ukraine militarily, but wary of being so escalatory as to antagonize Russia. Some retired officers have complained to me that U.S. has been too incremental in providing military aid, but pressure from Ukraine's President Zelensky, NATO allies, and some on Capitol Hill as well as the Russian brutality against civilians, have all served to ramp up aid with artillery and then tanks and now, of course, F-16s. And Lloyd Austin and others have said this is Ukraine's war, but let's face it, it is being supplied totally by the U.S. and NATO. Joanna, how much is riding on this latest Ukrainian offensive? So, you know, Ukrainian leaders are feeling a lot of pressure right now, Ari. They're asking what happens if this counteroffensive fizzles. Will the U.S. and the European Union really stand by Ukraine as long as it takes? Because if that's a long time and the West sees no progress, what happens? And without progress on the battlefield, you know, Ukrainians themselves see a future of uncertainty and daily airstrikes and a lot of danger. So President Zelensky sees that, too, and he knows that this limbo state is destabilizing for Ukrainian society and for his government. And that's why he keeps flying around the world saying we need these advanced weapons as soon as possible so we can win this and hopefully end this conflict on terms favorable to Ukraine. NPR's Joanna Kakissis and Tom Bowman. Thank you both. You're You're welcome. welcome. 
Nice dry heat is one of the things that draws people to Phoenix, but in recent years, climate change has driven temperatures up, and it's been too much. So the local governments are doing something about it, spending more on heat relief than ever, hoping to bring down the skyrocketing number of heat-related deaths. From member station KJZZ, Catherine Davis-Young reports. Barbara Gakey has lived in a modest house in the retirement community of Sun City West for 30 years. She loves Arizona and doesn't mind the hot summers, as long as she can relax inside in her big recliner. It feels nice and cool in here today. Oh, wonderful. You don't know what we went through. A few weeks ago, as temperatures started climbing to triple digits, Geiki's air conditioner stopped working. Geiki, who's 90 with a number of health problems, turned up the ceiling fans but soon felt weak and nauseous. I was so sick because I was so hot and I, I, I just couldn't take the hot weather. Geiki's granddaughter, Amber Stilson, takes care of her full-time. They rely on Geiki's small retirement income. Replacing an AC unit could cost more than $10,000. I was just afraid for her because she couldn't afford it, and she couldn't live like this, so I didn't know what the next step would be, so I just called everywhere. Eventually, she ended up on the phone with Maricopa County. They said they'd replace Geiki's AC free of charge. We are further ahead of the game than we ever have been when it comes to addressing heat relief in our community. Jacqueline Edwards with the county says the AC replacement program is one of several new initiatives to mitigate the effects of heat. Over the past year, the county has replaced about 500 units for low-income homeowners. They plan to replace another 5 to 600 in the months ahead. This could mean a matter of life and death. That's not hyperbole. County analysis shows when heat deaths happened indoors last summer, the majority of the time the AC was not working. But about three quarters of the county's heat deaths in recent years have occurred outdoors. County officials say the biggest threat is not just scorching temperatures. It's that the number of unsheltered people in the region is triple what it was 10 years ago. Danielle McMahon oversees dining services for the Society of St. Vincent de Paul. She witnesses firsthand how the heat strains unsheltered people. People come in, they're definitely in need of reprieve from the elements. It's very hard to sleep at night when it's so hot outside, so people are exhausted. This summer, the county is spending millions to partner with Metro Phoenix cities on heat relief for homeless residents. They'll open daytime cooling shelters, fund street outreach teams, and even pay for hotel vouchers and transportation. McMahon's Dining Hall is getting funding, too. It's opening in the afternoons as a cooling center, then they'll fold up the tables and fill the building with 200 beds for overnight heat relief. Oh, so you have the beds like all, all through this hallway? Yeah. yeah. Every, it sounds like every inch that you can? Yep. Uh, we just try to max out the capacity, keeping it safe, but we want to get as many people inside as we can. The dining hall has been used as a makeshift overnight shelter in the past, but it can only operate that way when outside funding is available. This year, the funding is massive. The county is putting nearly $14 million toward this shelter, the city partnerships, and the AC program. That's on top of $500 million the Board of Supervisors has directed toward affordable housing and homelessness solutions since 2020. But heat is only going to become a bigger challenge in coming years. The National Weather Service projects due to climate change, Phoenix will average more than 120 triple-digit days per year by the end of this decade. And most of the funding is only temporary. It's coming out of federal pandemic aid dollars. 
Officials hope the unprecedented spending this summer will make enough of an impact that the county will continue to find ways to invest in some of these programs after federal funding runs out. But they say even getting just one more person out of the heat will be a success. Back in Sun City West, Barbara Gakey says when she found out the county was going to help her stay cool this summer, it made all the difference in the world. I was so happy. I would cry. I would cry. For NPR News, I'm Katherine Davis-Young in Sun City West. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 15 minutes on All Things Considered, the U.S. Supreme Court has reduced the scope of the Clean Water Act and what it means for wetlands. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, announcing Xfinity 10G Network, so everyone at home can be online, even peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now. And Salem State University School of Graduate Studies. Join classmates with varied professional and educational backgrounds. SalemState.edu slash graduate. On Wall Street today, the Dow lost 0.1 percent, the S&P went up 0.9 percent, and NASDAQ gained 1.7 percent. In local business news, new housing permits in greater Boston have fallen 30 percent compared to this time last year. According to the Boston Business Journal, cities and towns approved fewer than 3,800 housing permits between January and April. Last month alone, just over 640 permits were issued. That's less than half the number of permits issued in April of 2022. This is WBUR. Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Vertex, where cell and genetic therapies teams are using innovation to create and deliver transformative therapies for people living with serious diseases. Learn more about how you can make your mark and shape the future at Vertex. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. Well, if you're used to watching TV when and how you want, you can now do the same thing while you listen to the radio. You can pause and rewind live radio with the new WBUR app. Download it in the App Store today. Well, beautiful weather on tap for the upcoming weekend. First, tonight will be cloudy. The low will be in the upper 40s. Then lots of sunshine tomorrow. It'll be pleasant with temperatures around 68 degrees. Saturday, sunny skies again. Temps in the mid-70s. Warmer Sunday in the low 80s with more sunshine. And then Memorial Day, Monday, a picturesque day for a parade or a ceremony. It'll be sunny in the upper 70s. Right now, it's 58 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. And from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline the hiring process. Indeed works to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates in one place. More at Indeed.com slash NPR. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. In your eyes, I get lost. I get washed away. The world of rock and roll lost its queen yesterday.
Tina Turner died at her home in Switzerland on Wednesday, despite the tributes that have poured in since that news broke, despite her decades of electrifying performances and chart toppers, and despite her alias, Queen of Rock and Roll. NPR It's Been a Minute host Brittany Luce says, Turner never came anywhere close to getting the credit she deserved for shaping a genre. Brittany Luce is with me now. Welcome. We're so glad to have you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. Brittany, I hope you can just start, if you can, by explaining how someone that the world knows as the queen of rock and roll did not get the due that she deserved. (laughs) I mean, look, this is the thing. I'm just taking a cue from Tina. Tina said famously in a late 90s interview with Mike Wallace from CBS, when he asked her if she felt like she deserved all this, all this meaning her beautiful life, full of luxury, full of beloved fans and sold out tours, she said... I think I deserve more. I deserve more. Um, And I 100% agree. Tina Turner is an architect of rock and roll. And I'm just not sure she's seen that way. Um, You know, I think for many people, when they close their eyes and they think of a rock star, they picture a rock star. They picture someone like Mick Jagger. But Mick Jagger learned how to dance, learned how to perform, standing in the wings watching Tina Turner when they toured together in the 1960s. Tina Turner essentially taught Mick Jagger how to be Mick Jagger. And I just feel like, despite all of the accolades, I don't know um, if if she really received in her lifetime the queen of rock and roll treatment, um, as, as the moniker so goes. So I think we can all agree that there are a lot of people who did not fully appreciate Tina Turner for who she was. But you point out that there is one person who really does get it right. And that is Oprah Winfrey. I just want to listen for a second to one of the ways that she talked about Tina Turner. We are so in love with Tina. We are in love with Tina. She is our goddess of rock and roll, Tina. (laughs) Not a queen, a goddess. Say more, Brittany. Oh, a goddess. Oprah's 150% right. Oprah Winfrey is you know, larger than life. And she has been for decades. She doesn't even need to use her last name. We all know Oprah as just, you know, a complete sentence. Um, But the way we act when we see Oprah (laughs) is the way Oprah reacts when she sees Tina Turner. Um, And I love that. I love that somebody as accomplished and as known and as famous and as just huge as Oprah is understands (laughs) <laughs> the power of Tina Turner and and also knew well enough to call her a goddess. Uh, there are so many beautiful moments of Oprah and Tina together on various Oprah shows and in Oprah interviews over the years. Oprah invited Tina Turner to her Legends Ball back in 2005, the incredible weekend she hosted at her home for so many, um, you know, black women trailblazers. And, you know, Oprah, I think, is somebody who absolutely showed Tina the utmost respect throughout her life and really... Um, and and really not just champion her story, but champion her artistry. Um, I think of one story in particular. I think Oprah, in some ways, wanted to be Tina Turner. Uh, for an episode of the, of the Oprah Winfrey show, she got a wig, uh, a Tina wig made so that they could kind of match. She wore it in that episode. She continued wearing it, though, after that in many other episodes. Started wearing it on the weekends, started wearing it to bed. Uh, until eventually Stedman told her, uh, hate to break it to you, but uh, you're never going to be Tina Turner. (laughs) To me, that sort of breathless fandom is the only way to regard the goddess of rock and roll like Tina. Okay, so we just heard Oprah talking about Tina Turner's wildest dreams to her, but I mean, she was such a performer. Yeah. 
mean, this is Tina Turner on the Live Aid stage in 1985, and she was just electric. But Brittany, I understand that when you think about Tina's greatest performance, you've got a different answer. Yes, I think many people think of um, Tina only as a stage performer, which, I mean, obviously she was one of the best to ever do it. Um, but she also was electrifying on film. I'm thinking of the 1975 um, movie based on the album, The Who's Tommy, where she plays this character, the Acid Queen. Acid Queen has this long solo in the middle of the film. Um, I mean, Tina's changing costumes. She's belting. She's shaking and quaking with her whole body. Um, she's wearing these tall, I mean, I mean, maybe six, seven inch tall, like lipstick, red platform heels, and she's giving it her all. I mean, and this is a film, you got Roger Daltrey in every scene. You've got, you know, like you got um, Elton John, you know, in one of the songs, uh, you know, also performing in this film at one of the peaks of his fame in the mid 70s. But in a film full of rock stars, Tina, to me, stands out as the true supernova. I mean, look, there is no question that Tina is talented and powerful and was a multi-genre force across music. But one thing I find really interesting is that I understand that you didn't know much of Tina Turner's backstory when you became a fan. When you first encountered her, you met her as this powerful and successful performer, period. You only learned of her backstory, including the years of abuse that she suffered at the hands of Ike Turner, her ex-husband, later. Do you think that altered the lens through which you viewed her? I absolutely think that that shaped my understanding of her. When I first got to know Tina, I saw her as a woman who had come already on the other side. She was one of the biggest stars in the world to me. And I think I kind of assumed that things were always that way for her. Um, as I got older and I, you know, read her memoirs and also like many people watched the Tina documentary that came out on HBO a couple years ago, um, I really came to understand not just what she survived, but how she continued to advocate for herself, hold space for herself and maintain her peace. Um, even, you know, years after she had escaped her first marriage, you know, understanding just how common what she survived is how common intimate partner violence and domestic abuse are. Um, her story has has really just deepened my appreciation for her, not just as an artist, but as a woman, as a human being. Brittany Luce of NPR's It's Been a Minute. Thank you so much for coming on this journey to remember Tina Turner with me. Oh, my absolute pleasure. It's the least I could do. This is NPR News. 
And thanks for starting your evening with us here at WBUR. Coming up in about 20 minutes on All Things Considered, lessons for law enforcement a year after the mass shooting at an elementary school in Uvalde, Texas. Well, some clouds tonight, then clearing out for sunny skies tomorrow and through the long weekend. It'll warm up from the upper 60s tomorrow to low 80s on Sunday, around 78 degrees for Memorial Day. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink, partnering with Mass Audubon to protect climate-resilient landscapes. MathWorks.com slash Mass Audubon. And Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at FindMassMoney.com. Falling asleep. The British songwriter Arlo Parks sings of her depression. She says it helps. Getting used to the fact that things don't go to plan and the universe deals you blows that you would never expect and gives you beautiful moments that you would never expect. Putting mental health into music. Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WB1. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Lawmakers in Washington are preparing to leave town for the long Memorial Day recess without a deal to raise the nation's borrowing limit. President Biden addressed the issue today for the first time since returning home Monday. From his meeting with world leaders in Japan, Biden once again laid out the White House position. I've made clear time and again defaulting on our national debt is not an option. The American people deserve to know that the Social Security payments will be there. The veterans' hospitals remain open. And that economic progress will be made, and we're going to continue to make it. Default puts all that at risk. Biden says the only way forward is a bipartisan agreement, and he believes one will be reached. Republicans are demanding spending cuts the Democrats oppose as their price for raising the legal debt limit. U.S. Supreme Court has ruled in favor of landowners and groups that for decades have sought to roll back clean water rules adopted by the Environmental Protection Agency, NPR's Nina Totenberg says the ruling significantly narrows the scope of the law. Michael and Chantel Sackett bought property close to Priest Lake, Idaho, planning to build a dream home there. But the EPA stopped work on the project because the couple failed to get a permit, as required, to avoid potential pollution of the nearby waters. Today, the Supreme Court ruled that long-standing anti-pollution rules adopted by the EPA and the Corps of Engineers violated the Sackett's property rights under the Constitution. They divided five to four as to how far to go in limiting the EPA's authority, with five of the court's conservatives siding with the Sackett's and mining, oil, mineral, and business groups. Nina Totenberg, NPR News, Washington. Stocks finished mixed on Wall Street today. The Dow lost 35 points, down one-tenth of a percent. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. The city of Boston says it will partner with community groups to provide neighborhood meals and activities to help prevent violence this summer. As the city outlines those plans, Boston police are investigating the murder of a community leader. 33-year-old Daniel Mayers was shot to death in Dorchester on Monday. Mayor Michelle Wu says Mayer's death is a huge loss for the community. Someone who was active in his church as a pastor and longtime Boston Public School employee and public servant. And so I just wanted to make sure to elevate the wishes and conversations that our team has been having with some of the family members. Police are asking for the public's help in the murder investigation. At local commencements today... 
A big surprise at one, a major star at the other. UMass Boston graduates received a cash gift along with their diplomas. Quincy Telecommunications billionaire Rob Hale gave the 2,500 grads $1,000 each. Hale told them the gift comes with a catch. The first 500 is for you. It's a celebration of all you have done to be here today. The second 500 is a gift for you to give to somebody or somebody else or another organization who could use it more than you. Hale delivered the keynote address. It was UMass Boston's 55th commencement. And Tom Hanks addressed the graduating class at Harvard today. The actor warned against what he called agents of hubris, apathy, intolerance, and incompetence. Hanks told the graduating class there are three types of Americans. Those who embrace liberty and freedom for all. Those who won't or those who are indifferent. Only the first do the work of creating a more perfect union, a nation indivisible. The others get in the way. Harvard awarded Hanks an honorary Doctor of Arts degree. It's 534. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. Well, it's hard to complain about this holiday weekend forecast. It'll be cloudy tonight with temps in the upper 40s, then sunny the next several days. Highs in the upper 60s tomorrow, low 70s or mid-70s Saturday. The high should reach the low 80s on Sunday. And Memorial Day Monday, temps in the upper 70s with sun. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Plymouth Gin Distillery. Plymouth Gin is imported from England's southwest coast, distilled using a blend of seven botanicals, including juniper berry, coriander seed, and citrus peel. Plymouth Gin, since 1793. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. This is NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. It's been nearly two weeks since the end of Title 42. Those pandemic border restrictions had been used to quickly expel migrants at the U.S.-Mexico border. And the predictions from some lawmakers about what would happen next were dire. It's going to be chaotic for a while. All hell is going to break loose along the border. 10,000 apprehensions a day. These are apocalyptic levels. It will be a humanitarian crisis because we are not prepared. That was President Joe Biden, Republican Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina, Stephen Miller, a White House advisor to former President Donald Trump, and Arizona Senator Kirsten Sinema, a former Democrat turned independent. But those predictions of chaos did not pan out. Instead, apprehensions at the border are down sharply. NPR's Joel Rose covers immigration, and he joins us in studio now. Hey. Hey, Juana. So, Joel, what happened? The honest answer is we don't know exactly. Uh, I can tell you that there was a big influx, but it happened in the days before Title 42 expired. More than 10,000 apprehensions a day uh, at one point, and that was a record-setting pace. But then the number of migrants crossing the border dropped off sharply to the lowest levels we've seen in months. There were still a lot of people in Border Patrol custody facilities that were way above their official capacity, but it was not the quote-unquote apocalypse some people were expecting. Okay, you cover these issues closely. What do you make of that? 
migrants, I think, knew that the policy was going to change. And many decided that they wanted to cross the border ahead of that. And that fits with with what we heard from people at the border in El Paso and in Ciudad Juarez. And experts I've talked to think we are now in in a kind of wait and see phase, which has happened before after big policy shifts. Migrants, Migrants are smart. They're looking at social media. They're communicating with friends and family in the U.S. They're weighing what they hear, both from smugglers and from government officials. And they're trying to figure out what all this is going to mean for them. Okay, so why did so many people across the ideological spectrum get this so wrong? Partly, I think this came from overstating the effectiveness and the importance of Title 42. There was no lasting legal consequence for being expelled under Title 42. So migrants would cross repeatedly to try to apply for asylum. And that drove up the numbers. In reality, immigration authorities were were already moving away from Title 42 But you would have never known that from listening to the political discourse. I talked about this with Muzaffar Chishti from the Nonpartisan Migration Policy Institute in Washington. By its end, it had just become a talking point. The Republicans were busy saying the Title 42 that Trump put in place is the answer to all our problems. And Democrats were seeing this as a poster child of cruelty. So not even recognizing that it had become less and less important. So a lot of the fear-mongering around the end of Title 42 was about politics. And I don't think that's going to end with Title 42. We're already hearing a lot about the quote-unquote crisis at the border from Republican candidates announcing their intention to run for president. Also from, from GOP governors in Texas and Florida who have made a big show of sending more law enforcement resources to the border. I think all of that is likely to continue whether the border, border crossing numbers you know, rebound or not. So, Joel, what else are you watching going forward? I think Mexico plays a crucial role in all of this. Will the Mexican government crack down on migration and turn more people away? Um, Or will we see the same kind of bottleneck in Mexican border cities in the north that we did a few months ago? Also litigation in the U.S. The Biden administration's policies are being challenged in court from both sides of the political spectrum. There's a group of states led by Texas challenging new legal pathways the administration has put in place. And immigrant advocates are challenging new limits on asylum at the border. Both of those cases are going to be moving through the courts in June and July. And, you know, it would not be surprising if one or both of those policies are ultimately blocked. NPR's Joel Rose. Thank you, Joel. You're welcome. The U.S. Supreme Court issued two decisions today siding with property owners who claimed the government had unconstitutionally taken their property without just compensation. In the more important case, the court significantly curtailed the power of the Environmental Protection Agency to regulate the nation's wetlands and waterways. NPR Legal Affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg reports. Michael and Chantel Sackett bought property to build their dream house about 500 feet away from Idaho's scenic Priest Lake, a 19-mile stretch of clear water that's fed by mountain streams and bordered by state and national parkland and a shoreline dotted with vacation homes and marinas. But three days after the Sacketts started excavating their property, the EPA stopped work on the project because the couple had failed to get a permit for disturbing the wetlands on their land. Today, a conservative Supreme Court majority used the Sacketts case to roll back longstanding rules adopted to carry out the 1972 Clean Water Act. While the nine justices agree that the Sacketts should prevail, they 
divided five to four as to how far to go in limiting the EPA's authority. Writing for the court majority, Justice Samuel Alito said that the navigable waters of the United States covered by the EPA under the statute do not include many previously regulated wetlands. Rather, the CWA extends to only those waters described as streams, oceans, rivers, and lakes, and those wetlands with a, quote, continuous surface connection to those bodies. Justice Brett Kavanaugh, joined by the court's three liberal members, disputed Alito's reading of the statute, noting that since 1977, when the CWA was amended to include adjacent wetlands, eight consecutive administrations, Republican and Democratic, have interpreted the law to cover wetlands that the court today excluded. Kavanaugh said that by narrowing the act to cover only adjoining wetlands, the court's new test will have, quote, significant repercussions for water quality and flood control throughout the United States. I don't think it's an overstatement to say it's catastrophic for the Clean Water Act. Jim Murphy of the National Wildlife Federation says wetlands play an enormous role in protecting the nation's water. They're really the kidneys of water systems, and they're also the sponges. They absorb a lot of water on the landscape. So they're very important water features, and they're very important to the quality of the waters that we drink, swim, fish, boat, and recreate in. As in last year's case, limiting the EPA's ability to regulate power plant pollution in the air, the decision was a major victory for the groups that supported the Sacketts, mining, oil, utilities, and in today's case, agricultural and real estate interests as well. Speaking for the court's liberals, Justice Elena Kagan pointed to the two cases and accused the majority of appointing itself instead of Congress as the national policymaker on the environment. In another decision that involved the takings clause of the Constitution, the court unanimously ruled in favor of a 94-year-old widowed grandmother in Minneapolis whose condominium was seized for failure to pay property taxes. The decision is important because Minnesota is one of about 20 states that handle the sale of such properties without sharing the proceeds with the previous owner. In this case, the owner, Geraldine Tyler, owed $15,000 in back taxes, penalties, and fees. But when the county sold the condo for $40,000, she got none of the $25,000 surplus. The county argued that she would have gotten nothing regardless because she owed $61,000 in mortgage and unpaid homeowners association fees. But writing for the court, Chief Justice John Roberts said that the county unconstitutionally kept $25,000 that belonged to Tyler. And if she'd gotten the money, she could have, at the very least, used it to pay off some of her other debts. Nina Totenberg, NPR News, Washington. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. One year ago this week, a man with an automatic rifle killed 19 children and two teachers at Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas. Their families and friends are mourning, and for law enforcement, this week is a grim reminder of their colleagues' mistakes that day. The state of Texas has now passed a law requiring more training to try to avoid repeating those failures. NPR's Martin Costi reports. Everybody agrees on this. 
police took too long to directly confront the killer that day. 73 minutes from the arrival of the first officers until the moment a Border Patrol team finally went through a classroom door and shot him. In that time, 376 officers from various agencies showed up and then held back. Sympathetic hesitation is actually a fairly normal human impulse. You're not going? Should I not go if you're not going? Clint Bruce is former military special operations who now works with police. He says you have to teach them to overcome that impulse in these situations. A very explicit, very clear guidance that you do not have to pause. You need to go. That was the central lesson of the Columbine High School massacre in 1999. Police should move in as fast as possible to stop the killing and then stop the dying. And trainers believe the best way to learn this is to do it. These Texas cops are running through active shooter scenarios in a vacant building near Dallas. They're firing simulated ammunition, trying to find and stop the killer, even as wounded role players cry for help. This is ALERT. That stands for Advanced Law Enforcement Rapid Response Training, something created here in Texas two decades ago. Its active shooter courses have become a federal standard, and now Texas is requiring all its cops to do 16 hours of this training every two years. The courses are updated often. For instance, trainer Randy Knight tells this class that research is showing that there's rarely a second shooter, so once cops have stopped one killer, they shouldn't leave wounded people behind to go looking for possible other attackers. Do these victims in here that are bleeding out, do they have time for me to go chase a ghost? No, because before I even get off this first floor, they'll have bled out. One clear failure in Uvalde was leadership. A Texas State House report said the role of incident commander was, quote, not effectively performed by anyone. This alert training session is stressing the importance of command and that it's not a matter of rank. Trainer Kevin Willis tells one officer to imagine being the first cop on the scene and how he would identify himself as he calls it in on the radio. Who are you? Who are you? Cool. You are command. First officer helps make or break this entire scene. Command can be transferred as the incident progresses and more people show up, preferably to an officer outside the building. But it needs to be someone who knows the situation and is willing to take command. Steve Iams says willingness is key. Based in Missouri, he trains officers around the country. And when Uvalde comes up, he tells cops that they also need to prepare for this mentally. Talk with your family and acknowledge that though unlikely this job may call me to step into an environment on behalf of others, reconcile that decision before you have to make it, before the hair stands up on the back of their neck. And as an example of mental preparedness, he points to the police who responded to the active shooter attack on a school in Nashville in March. It's seen in police circles as a textbook case of doing this right. Sadly, for those who are looking for examples of cops responding to active shooters right or wrong, there's always a new supply of case studies for the trainers to choose from. Martin Costi, NPR News, Irving, Texas. And you're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, Iowa, the busy testing ground for Republicans running for president and those considering entering the race. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Umbrella Art Center with the musical adaptation of Alice Walker's Pulitzer-winning classic, The Color Purple, now through June 4th, theumbrellaarts.org. And Volante Farms in Needham. 
featuring farm-to-table meals to go on Wednesdays and Sundays. View menus and order online at volantefarms.com. Well, in sports, the Celtics are hoping to keep their postseason run alive tonight. They'll take on the Miami Heat at the Garden. Miami leads the Eastern Conference Final three games to one. And skies will be mostly cloudy tonight. Temps will dip to the upper 40s. Sunny tomorrow with temps in the upper 60s. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include Cityside Subaru, introducing the all-new, all-electric Subaru Solterra on Route 60 in Belmont and at citysidesubaru.com. Love is now electric. Bailey Donahue can never forget the moment when she got the news. I see two men in uniform standing in my living room. My mother is on her knees, kneeling atop a carpet my dad sent us from Afghanistan. You have the wrong guy, she cries out. I walk towards my mom and wrap my arms around her. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Gold Star children of fallen soldiers tell their stories. That's On Point, tomorrow at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. It's All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. Forty years ago today, the third hugely anticipated Star Wars movie hit the big screen. It was called Return of the Jedi. Back then, in 1983, All Things Considered host Susan Stamberg asked a young boy to give us a sneak preview of the movie. And be warned, you are about to hear some spoilers for a 40-year-old movie that, let's be honest, you should have seen by now. Han Solo and Luke Skywalker are about to go in the pit, and just as is about to walk the plank, R2-D2 fired a laser gun from his head, and Han catched it, and he blew up the whole ship, and the big guy, the, all the bosses, the monsters, well, he got choked. At the time, though, all of those plot details, they really wrangled our listeners. So much so that the next day, Susan Stamberg issued an on-air apology. Well, sort of. Let's listen. Well, the comic book was a goof, but we certainly goofed last night. We goofed so badly that we changed our program before rebroadcasting it to the West Coast, which means that you West Coast listeners won't know what I'm talking about, but enough of you on the East Coast called to complain that we want to apologize publicly to everybody. Calls. There were more phone calls on this one than we ever got in the middle of the hottest Middle East disputes. Calls. There were more phone calls than Richard Gere would get if he listed his number. And all because last night on All Things Considered, we permitted a six-and-a-half-year-old boy to tell us everything, and I mean everything, about Return of the Jedi. You gave the plot away, you said. I've been waiting for that movie for three years, and now you have ruined it for me. How could you do a thing like that? Well, we are sorry. We're contrite, and we're fascinated. Usually, you get angry when we get our facts wrong. This time, we got them right, and you got angry. It's the difference between fact and fiction, of course, and the power of fantasy in our lives, the need for mystery, for wonderful stories that spill themselves out for us. Of course, if they are wonderful enough, this may be an excuse, but I doubt it, if they're wonderful enough, they will come to us new, even though we've seen them a hundred times. That's why people keep going back to see Romeo and Juliet over and over again, or The Wizard of Oz. We know how they end, but find great pleasure and nourishment watching them proceed to that ending. Two years from now, that's how we'll feel about the return of the Jedi. For now, though, our apologies. We will not do that again. 
But listen, I have just seen the new Superman 3, and Superman and Lois Lane. Forty years later, of course Susan was right. We are still watching Return of the Jedi and still loving it. There's a new Spanish-language comedy circuit in Washington, D.C. called Gente Funny. It was started by Venezuelan writer and performer Angelo Colina. All of us in the audience, or most of us, speak English. We're just deciding to speak Spanish. As NPR's Isabella Gomez Sarmiento reports, the bilingual show digs into the mistranslations and contradictions of Latinx culture. Bienvenidos. ¿Alguien más de dónde? Por allá? During a recent set at Room 808 in Washington, D.C., Angelo Colina works the crowd by asking where they're from. A guy in the back raises his hand. He's from Bolivia, and his friend is Cuban. That's the Cuban friend, telling Colina he's basically white. No, you're not. No, pero a los He's not, Colina tells him. But Cubans love thinking that they are, he says. The crowd erupts into laughter. This exchange is just a small slice of how Colina's set pokes and prods at the construction of Latinx and Hispanic identity in the U.S. That identity includes a wide range of countries, languages, and experiences. But Colina says Latinx comedians in the U.S. can still be made to feel like their identities have to check a certain box. You see comedians that have been here for, like, ages or that were even born here, like, and they're Latinos. And they still have to do the abuelita, they still have to do the tia, they still have to do that. Because that's their way to be like, hey, this is my label. Spanish is the second most commonly spoken language in the U.S., according to the Census Bureau. But Colina says in movies, TV, and even in stand-up, Spanish is often just used as a decorative prop, sprinkled in without adding any plot or value. Because it's a café con leche or it's a chancla. And we're just so much more than that. And our voices are different, too, and we speak different, and we have a different sense of humor. Colina started doing stand-up when he moved to the U.S. in 2018. In New York City, he connected with Andres Sereno. The two were searching for comedy clubs where they could regularly perform in Spanish. So it was so hard to find spots and everything else, and we thought, like, all right, so there's no comedy in Spanish in New York City? That's insane. So they co-founded their own Spanish-language circuit called Español Please. In 2021, they became the third group to ever perform in Spanish at the New York Comedy Festival. Their shows, aimed at connecting first, second, third generation Latinos, and whoever's in between, dig into being bicultural, bilingual, both and neither. I'm not only an immigrant, and I'm not only Venezuelan, and I'm not only a guy with an accent. I think for a long time, there was this perception that in order to be a Latino comedian, you needed to be a Latino comedian that fit the paradigm of what a Latino was for people that weren't. <laughs> That's Joanna Hausman, a Venezuelan-American comedian and TV writer who's been making bilingual content for over 10 years. When she started performing in New York City in the early 2010s, she says there were shows here and there, but not really a pronounced scene. I really think there was this sense for a while that bilingual comedy just was not mainstream and it wasn't for everyone and there wasn't enough of an audience. But YouTube and social media changed everything, says Hausman. Latinx-focused bilingual content was no longer seen as niche. Soon, her sketches and rants about immigration, identity, and culture were drawing hundreds of thousands of subscribers. That's how she met Angelo Colina, 
The two connected over Instagram and filmed a sketch together about two strangers realizing they're both Venezuelan over the phone. Um, is this Miss Houseman? Now Colina's finding that mainstream audience in person, in comedy clubs across the country. He's touring his headline show, Little Alone, a mistranslation of the Spanish word solito. And with monthly performances of Gente Funny in D.C., local comedians like Jose Sanchez are performing in Spanish for the first time. If I make a mistake, Sanchez tells the crowd, just tell me. But the audience keeps laughing as he finds his footing. There are no words for that. Colina beams with pride. I could not be happier with what we're doing, honestly. So now, for immigrant or first or second generation comedians, Spanish can be more of a flex than a punchline. Isabella Gomez Sarmiento, NPR News, Washington. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BritBox with Season 2 of The Tower starring Gemma Whalen. This and more police dramas, including Line of Duty and The Responder starring Martin Freeman. Streaming at BritBox.com NPR. From proven winners color choice offering flowering shrubs, from hydrangeas to lilacs to evergreens, the full collection is at provenwinnerscolorchoice.com slash NPR. From Cunard, offering travelers an opportunity to voyage aboard Cunard's Queen Elizabeth to Alaska. Guests can explore ports and scenic cruising through Glacier Bay National Park with locally sourced cuisine. More at cunard.com. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. Thanks for joining us here on 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 15 minutes, predictions for the upcoming hurricane season. Well, it'll be mostly cloudy tonight with temperatures in the upper 40s, then sunshine tomorrow and through the holiday weekend. Temps in the upper 60s tomorrow, about 75 degrees Saturday. Sunday should reach the low 80s, then Memorial Day, Monday, the upper 70s. Right now it's 58 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, announcing Xfinity 10G Network so everyone at home can be online, even peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now. I'm WBUR State House reporter Steve Brown, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime on our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Tensions build in negotiations over the debt ceiling, with House Democrats getting more critical of their Republican colleagues. They do not have the votes to make the cuts they are trying to bully the president into making, because they want the president to share in the blame. This just days before the U.S. could run out of money to pay its bills. It's Thursday, May 25th. This is All Things Considered. 
Good afternoon, I'm Lynn Jolliker, in for Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, how to set up kids for healthy habits when so many diets are dominated by ultra-processed foods, which research links to health problems. And ahead on Marketplace at 6.30, as fewer high school graduates enroll in higher ed, some are rethinking the value of a college degree. People kind of didn't realize how costly student debt could be, and it's not just magically going to fix itself 20 years down the road. That's ahead on Marketplace. It's 6.01. News headlines are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. President Biden says negotiators are continuing to meet about spending and the debt ceiling, and they're making progress. He made the remarks at the top of a Rose Garden event in honor of his nominee to be the Joint Chiefs of Staff Chairman General Charles Q. Brown. Earlier, White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre said the president remains committed to continuing negotiations. At the end of the day, everyone understands that the only way to move forward here is with a bipartisan, reasonable agreement on the budget that can win support from both sides, from both Democrats and Republicans in the House and in the Senate. Biden reiterated the White House's proposal, which has been rejected by Republicans. It includes a mix of spending cuts along with increases in revenues, partly through taxes for higher income earners and the closing of tax loopholes. Oath Keepers leader Stuart Rhodes has been sentenced to spend 18 years in prison on sedition and other charges. NPR's Kerry Johnson reports that's the longest punishment yet for a defendant tied to the attack on the Capitol. Wearing an orange jail jumpsuit, Stuart Rhodes cast himself as a political prisoner and said his experience with the justice system had been surreal. Judge Amit Mehta rejected those claims and said Rhodes presented a, quote, ongoing threat and peril to this country. Rhodes inspired dozens of people to travel to Washington for the January 6, 2021 rally, and he continued to call for political violence even behind bars, the judge says. Rhodes' sentence of 18 years could provide a roadmap for the punishment of Proud Boys leader Enrique Tarrio later this summer. Both men have been convicted of the rare charge of seditious conspiracy. Carrie Johnson, NPR News, Washington. South Carolina now joins other southern states with a law restricting most abortions. From South Carolina Public Radio, Felicia Eady reports there are exceptions and challenges are expected. In a closed session, Governor Henry McMaster signed a bill that bans most abortions after six weeks of pregnancy. The Fetal Heartbeat and Protection from Abortion Act goes into effect immediately. There are a few exceptions, including rape and incest, if the mother's life is endangered or if a fatal fetal anomaly is detected. Expected challenges to the law are now in play, as Planned Parenthood immediately filed lawsuit in state court asking that the law be blocked and for a temporary restraining order. Supporters say they're ready. In a statement on social media, McMaster said we stand ready to defend this legislation because there is no more important right than the right to life. For NPR News, I'm Felicia Eady in Columbia, South Carolina. A revised gross domestic product number from the government shows the economy was still growing during the first three months of the year, though just barely. In its revised GDP number out today, the government estimates the economy expanded at a 1.3 percent annual rate between January and March. It's up slightly from the previous estimate. On Wall Street, the Dow lost 35 points. The S&P was up 36. This is NPR. And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. Massachusetts doctors say they're working to minimize the effect of nationwide shortages of certain cancer drugs. As WBUR's Gabriella Emanuel reports, experts say shortages have become increasingly common over the last decade. 
When Jonathan Gerber started as an oncologist, he says drug shortages happened, but they were rare. Now it is a common thing that something at any given time is on shortage. Gerber now directs the Cancer Center at UMass Memorial Health. He says often there are good alternatives, but occasionally doctors do have to ration care. Gerber says Massachusetts is lucky to have a large cluster of doctors and healthcare systems that can help each other out. Because there's so many nearby surrounding hospitals, that ability to borrow between centers is an option. And he says large health systems have more purchasing power, which may help minimize shortages. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Gabriela Emanuel. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu says she's reviewing the new redistricting map passed by the city council yesterday. Wu says she also has experts looking over the plan. A federal judge said the council's previous map improperly broke up districts based on race. The mayor will need to sign the map into law by Tuesday so the fall elections will not be disrupted. The head of Boston's reparations task force has been fired after being arrested. According to a city spokesperson, George Williams' contract was terminated. Police say Williams was arrested last Thursday night for trespassing inside Boston City Hall. The reparations task force was established by the Boston City Council and appointed by the mayor to study the legacy of slavery in Boston and recommend reparations for black residents. Governor Maura Healey is calling on people to support and remember veterans. The governor made her comments while attending a service this morning on Boston Common. She was surrounded by more than 37,000 American flags, representing service members from Massachusetts who've died defending our country since the American Revolution. Skies will be mostly cloudy tonight and temps will dip to the upper 40s. Tomorrow looks bright and sunny again. We'll have temps in the upper 60s, then lots of sun and warmer for the holiday weekend. We'll have highs in the mid-70s Saturday. We should hit the low 80s on Sunday and we'll be around 78 degrees again with bright sunshine on Memorial Day. This is 90.9 WBUR. WBUR supporters include the Kaufman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kaufman.org. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. President Biden and House Republicans are finally saying they're making progress in their talks to lift the debt ceiling. Here's Biden. Speaker McCarthy and I have had several productive conversations And our staffs continue to meet as we speak, as a matter of fact, and they're making progress. But the clock is ticking, and it's not yet clear they'll make a deal in time to avert a default. And House lawmakers are on the verge of leaving town for the Memorial Day holiday weekend. It's all raising alarms for credit rating agencies. One has said that it could end up downgrading the country's rating because of all the political rancor. Joining us now are NPR's congressional correspondent, Claudia Grisales, and NPR's Scott Horsley, who follows the economy. Hi, you two. Hey there. Good to be with you. So, Claudia, let's start with you. It sounds like we are maybe starting to see some signs of momentum toward a deal, but how close are the two sides, really? They are still a good ways from putting pen to paper. We've seen a shift among the negotiators. They're not talking to us, the reporters, as much as they were a few days ago when they complained. There was no urgency on behalf of the White House. Now they say that urgency is there, and they're spending a lot more time behind closed doors. For example, they met for about four hours at the White House yesterday. This marks one of their longest meetings yet. President Biden said Republicans have turned down White House offers to install new programs to generate 
generate $3 trillion in new revenues. Democrats have said that included closing tax loopholes, such as, such as uh, installing new minimum tax requirements for billionaires and corporations as part of the talks. And I did ask House Speaker Kevin McCarthy about this. He said the focus should not be on revenue, that Democrats have a spending problem, and a deal should focus on spending cuts. We have to spend less than we spent last year. It is not my fault that the Democrats cannot give up on their spending. It's not a revenue problem. It's a spending problem. Scott, is McCarthy right about that, that the problem is government spending, not a revenue problem? Well, it's both. Uh, Spending outstrips revenue every year, and that's why we're running deficits and the debt keeps piling up. Uh, Part of the problem is that after the GOP tax cut in 2017, revenue as a share of GDP fell while spending did not. And then in 2020, when the pandemic hit, spending soared even higher. Now, spending has since come down as a share of GDP, but we're still spending more than we collect in taxes. Uh, As you hear, Speaker McCarthy insists Republicans won't look at raising revenue to close that gap. They're determined to do it all on the spending side. But they've also said Social Security, Medicare, and defense spending are off limits. And that's more than half the federal budget. Uh, Social Security and Medicare are also where much of the growth in spending is coming from as Americans get older. But that's not a part of these negotiations. Uh, The piece they are focused on, discretionary non-defense spending, is only about 16 percent of the federal budget. So even if you make deep cuts in that narrow slice of the pie, it's pretty hard to put much of a dent in the debt. I mean, Scott, we keep talking about this, it seems like, every day this week, but it is true. We really are approaching the date when the U.S. could run out of money. How nervous are our markets getting here? A little bit nervous. Uh, the Fitch Bond Rating Agency sounded a warning yesterday saying it's putting U.S. bonds on credit watch for a possible downgrade. Now, Fitch still thinks it's unlikely the U.S. will default on its debts or miss any other payments that are coming due, but the risk has gone up. Uh, this is mostly a commentary on the country's political situation, not the economic outlook. Uh, Fitch cited increased partisanship, brinkmanship over the debt limit, and the failure of political leaders to meaningfully tackle the country's mid-range fiscal challenges. Uh, Now, you can see how the bond markets are handicapping this. Uh, Investors are wary about holding U.S. government bonds that come due in just the next few weeks, when this could all come to a head. But people are still happy to hold longer-term debt from the U.S. government. I mean, Claudia, this deadline is looming. Congress, as we noted, is about to head out on recess. Does that mean that progress is done until they get back to the Capitol? Negotiators would say not at all. Speaker McCarthy has said that his uh, folks who are representing him in these talks will be working 24-7. So they, along with White House negotiators, will be the ones to watch. McCarthy's trying to make some difficult deadlines. He wants the House to have 72 hours to review the deal before they vote on a related bill. And the Senate, which comes back Tuesday, needs time to vote as well. So even though we don't have the contours of a deal yet, Even when we do, the devil is in the details. We often don't know the chances of getting passage on such bills until the text is released and there's actual votes. So even if Biden and McCarthy get a bipartisan deal, it is not clear that enough of their members will buy it to pass it out of their chamber. So it will be quite the high wire act to pull this off in time to avoid a financial default. NPR's Claudia Grisales and Scott Horsley. Thanks to both of you. You're welcome. You're welcome. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis made his presidential run official yesterday, and next week, he'll go to Iowa. That state's caucuses still kick off the primary calendar for Republicans. Iowa Public Radio's Clay Masters reports DeSantis joins a growing field of candidates trying to snag an early win over former President Donald Trump. 
As Ron DeSantis wraps up his big announcement on Twitter, dozens of Iowa voters gather at a machine and supply company in Sioux City. DeSantis isn't the only Republican to announce a White House bid this week. That's why these voters are here to see South Carolina Senator Tim Scott. I wish he would run, and now he's here. Retired music teacher Myra Nelson is excited to be here. She hopes Scott catches on. I was for Donald Trump, but if he gets in, it's just going to be the same thing again. A lot of slander, a lot of news, bad news about him. We need someone fresh and someone with good, solid ideas. Hello, Iowa! Scott doesn't bring up his competitors. Instead, he talks about the southern U.S. border, the fentanyl crisis, tells his story about growing up poor in a single-parent household, and criticizes Democrats, like when it comes to education. They're more interested in keeping those kids trapped in their schools and trapped out of their futures. And they're going to talk about the great opportunity party. Give a brother a break. Scott was well-received, but he's relatively unknown in a field where Donald Trump is the frontrunner. Other Republicans hope a win in Iowa could give them momentum to beat the former president, who has only made one trip to Iowa since announcing his third bid. DeSantis will make several stops here next week. He'll likely draw comparisons between Florida and Iowa, like he did in this state earlier this month. You know, sometimes people will, will say to me, they'll be like, Governor, why aren't other Republicans doing what you're doing in Florida? And I say they are doing it. And they say where? I say they're doing it in Iowa. The state's importance is clear for those who support Trump and those who want to derail his candidacy. Special interest groups like the conservative Americans for Prosperity are beefing up staff to knock doors and make phone calls. Drew Klein is the director of its Iowa chapter. There's a lot to be thankful for among the the GOP voters for policies that Trump helped implement when he was the president. But that doesn't really do us any good if he can't win a general election again. Voter and residential builder Kenon Davis favors DeSantis. I think that DeSantis is coming in cleaner. Uh, I think there's a there's a very strong opportunity that he could he could win a lot of the voters that simply just have disdain towards Trump. Davis's wife Chi, a real estate agent, hasn't made up her mind. For me, I'm still shopping around, so I want to hear all the candidates. The couple were invited to meet Mike Pence at a small backyard house party in Des Moines this week, where the former vice president chatted poolside and took photos with voters. Would you do me the honor of a photograph? Come on, my old sweetheart here is going to take the shot. Pence is expected to announce his bid early next month. As he wraps up his speech, he tells the crowd to take their job seriously as first-in-the-nation voters. Ask the hard questions. Shape the leadership. And whatever role my little family and I end up playing in the days ahead, I know Iowa is going to give us a standard bearer. Republicans in this field can take some lessons from history. Even though Trump won Iowa in 2016 and 2020, He came in second in the caucuses when he first ran nearly eight years ago. For NPR News, I'm Clay Masters in Des Moines. The forecast for the 2023 Atlantic hurricane season is in. Federal scientists are expecting a near normal number of storms, but normal does not mean good. NPR's Rebecca Hersher explains why. There are between 12 and 17 named storms predicted, which includes both tropical storms and hurricanes. About half will be full-blown hurricanes, forecasters expect. That's close to normal, but a normal hurricane season is still a very dangerous hurricane season. Rick Spinrad leads the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. It's time to prepare. Remember, it only takes one storm to devastate a community. 
Last year was the poster child for this. It was very quiet throughout the summer, and then Hurricane Ian came barreling in and devastated Florida. And that's after multiple years of back-to-back storms hitting the U.S. In fact, this is the first time in eight years that NOAA hasn't predicted an above-average hurricane season. So that's a bit of good news. But it also means that there are many, many places where people are still trying to rebuild from a past storm while also preparing for this hurricane season. Deanne Criswell leads the Federal Emergency Management Agency, FEMA. Anytime we have a community that is still going through a recovery from a previous storm, it just makes them that much more vulnerable. This year's forecast also has extra uncertainty baked into it, scientists say. That's because of a strange confluence of events in the Atlantic. On one hand, the climate pattern known as El Nino will almost certainly begin in the coming months. El Nino causes wind conditions in the Atlantic that disrupt storms, so fewer hurricanes. But climate change is causing the ocean water to heat up. Right now, the water in the Atlantic is abnormally warm and will stay that way this summer. And warmer water helps hurricanes form. So, more hurricanes. Matthew Rosencrantz is NOAA's lead hurricane season forecaster. That is definitely kind of a rare setup for this year. When we looked at it, we were like, wow, this is, there's a lot of uncertainty this year in the outlook. Which is another reason to prepare for hurricane season, no matter what the numbers say. That includes making a plan for evacuating and for prolonged power outages. Rebecca Hersher, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Coming up in about 20 minutes, corporate profits have been down for two quarters in a row now. What that means for big companies and the economy at large, that's coming up at Marketplace on Marketplace at 6.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Direct Tire and Auto Service, proud to support WBUR and public radio to help keep quality programming alive. DirectTire.com. On Wall Street today, the Dow lost 0.1 percent, the S&P gained 0.9 percent, and NASDAQ went up 1.7 percent. In other business news, the number of Americans filing new unemployment applications is on the rise. But that's not the case here in Massachusetts. Nationwide last week, jobless claims rose by 4,000. At the same time, new unemployment claims in Massachusetts were down nearly 2,200. The state's current unemployment rate is 3.3 percent. That's slightly below the national average. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by La Cuchara Cafe in Melrose, modern Latin American fare for those seeking flavorful, healthy choices. Catering your office lunch in Greater Boston. LaCuchara.com. Well, nervous Celtics fans are starting to gather near the Garden for Game 5 of the Eastern Conference Finals. For the second straight game, the Celtics will try to avoid elimination when they face the Miami Heat tonight. WBUR's Fausto Menard has a preview. The Celtics are hoping for a repeat performance of Tuesday night's game when they beat the Heat handily in South Florida. Boston still trails Miami three games to one, and no NBA team has ever won a seven-game series after losing the first three games like the Seas did. Celtics guard Marcus Smart says the team is taking things one game at a time. We understand, you know, um, the, the odds are stacked against us, but uh, we're a team that, that believes in us no matter what, and we just got to keep going, and all that matters is the next game. 
If the Celtics win tonight, these two teams will play again Saturday night in Miami. The winner of this series will play the Denver Nuggets for the NBA championship starting June 1st. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Fausto Menard. Coming to City Space Wednesday, June 21st, authors Matthew Desmond and Andre Dubus will discuss their new books. Both focus on poverty in America. Tickets at WBUR.org slash events. WBUR supporters include Sunbug Solar, helping to grow renewable energy in Massachusetts since 2009. To learn about solar energy employment opportunities, visit sunbugsolar.com. And the Umbrella Art Center, with the musical adaptation of Alice Walker's Pulitzer-winning classic, The Color Purple, now through June 4th, theumbrellaarts.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Kids in the U.S. are now getting two-thirds of their calories from ultra-processed foods. It's a trend that's been going up over the last two decades, and obesity rates among kids are climbing, too. As part of our series Living Better, NPR's Maria Godoy has been looking into the health concerns raised by this kind of diet and what parents can do about it. Maria, how surprising is it that two-thirds of what kids eat these days is ultra-processed? Well... It's surprising, and it isn't, because if you consider one recent study found that 73% of the U.S. food supply is ultra-processed, then it starts to seem almost inevitable that's what our kids are eating. And this really cuts across socioeconomic lines. Whatever their parents' income or education level, kids are eating this stuff a lot. How do you define ultra-processed? What does that actually mean? So a lot of food is processed. So you think canned tuna or smoked meat, fruit and syrup, and that's actually not what we're talking about. Ultra-processed foods are the product of industrial food manufacturing. So they include ingredients like hydrogenated oils, emulsifiers, flavor enhancers. They make the food taste good and last longer. It's food that's cheap, convenient, and everywhere, as I recently saw when I went shopping in your typical American grocery store with Allison Silvetsky. She is a nutrition researcher at George Washington University. Her work focuses on obesity and diabetes in kids. Okay, take us there. Let's listen to some of your reporting. 2.59. When we walk into the store, the fresh produce section is front and center. Here we go. But the bulk of the store is filled with row upon row of packaged foods. As we go through the aisles of the store, a large proportion of the foods are would be considered ultra-processed. Just pick up a product and read the ingredient list. Hydrolyzed protein isolates, high fructose corn syrup, colorings, bulking agents, added sugars. These are all telltale signs of ultra-processed food. Sometimes they can appear in places you might not expect them, like a package of tortilla chips I spot on the shelf. Sugar, huh? Why would you add sugar to tortilla chips? Onion powder, vinegar powder, Maltodextrin. What's maltodextrin? It is usually used as a bulking agent. Um, Mm. It is a filler in a lot of things to help with the texture of foods, and yeah, it's a bulking agent. Silvetsky says that just because a food is ultra-processed doesn't necessarily mean it's unhealthy. But in general, ultra-processed foods tend to be high not just in calories, but also sugar, fat, and sodium, which helps make these foods irresistible. They're so good. They're designed to taste good, and that's why it's hard for people not to eat them. But a growing body of evidence has linked overconsumption of ultra-processed foods to poor health outcomes in adults. Dr. Fengfeng Zhang is a nutritional epidemiologist at Tufts University. Data showed increased risk of hypertension, type 2 diabetes, and obesity among adults. 
and mortality from cardiovascular disease. In fact, she says research has linked eating too much ultra-processed food to a higher risk of dying prematurely from all causes. The evidence are pretty strong and consistent. But what's not clear is why. What is it about ultra-processed food that drives these poor health outcomes? Is it just because they are usually high in salt, sugar, and fat? Or is it something about the processing itself? That is the question Kevin Hall wanted to answer. He studies obesity and diabetes at the National Institutes of Health. And so we decided to try to investigate this by designing two diets that were matched in terms of their salt, sugar, fat, and fiber, as well as overall carbs. Um, but in one case was coming 80% of calories from ultra-processed foods. And the other case, 80% of calories from minimally processed foods and no ultra-processed foods. 20 people spent a month living at NIH. They ate one diet for two weeks, then they switched to the other. They were allowed to eat as much as they wanted. The results surprised Hall. I had sort of expected, because the diets were matched for all these nutrients of concern, there wouldn't be any difference. People would basically eat the same number of calories, basically maintain their usual weight. But in fact, people on the ultra-processed diet ate 500 calories more per day on average, and they gained weight. When they switched to the unprocessed diet... They basically just spontaneously lost weight and lost body fat. The findings were considered landmark. They strongly suggest it's not just the salt, sugar, and fat, but something about the highly processed nature of the food itself that propels people to overeat. Researchers still aren't sure exactly what is going on, but many agree there's something there. Now, when it comes to kids, the evidence is more limited, but childhood dietary habits often carry over into adulthood. So experts say cutting back on how much ultra-processed foods kids are eating now can help set them up for better health over the long haul. Maria, if ultra-processed food is everywhere and tempting to snack on, what can parents or anybody who wants to cut back on ultra-processed food do? The most important thing is to learn how to recognize it. And that means reading the ingredient list. If there are ingredients that you really, truly don't recognize, that's a sign it's ultra-processed. And sometimes you just have to compare packages. So if you're buying tortillas, one might have corn, lime, and salt, and the other one might have a whole list of emulsifiers and stabilizers. Personally, I go for the corn, lime, and salt. Researchers at Northeastern actually created a pretty nifty database called truefood.tech that lets you browse for food items to see how processed they are, and it even suggests less processed alternatives. What if ultra-processed foods are the only option? Some people don't have easy access to stores with lots of fresh ingredients, or fresh foods can be more expensive. Right. Well, you can make healthier choices even in the ultra-processed category. So, for instance, if you're buying packaged bread, go for whole grain. It's high in fiber and lower in sugar, and that's going to be better than white. Or with breakfast cereals, again, look for low sugar, high fiber, and high protein because that still matters. Or, you know, if you buy canned beans and they're high in sodium, rinse them off with tap water to flush out the extra salt. And if you have really young kids, you can actually head some of this off from the get-go by trying to get them used to tastes that aren't so sweet. Because a lot of packaged food aimed at kids is super sweet, and that's kind of how they get you. So you're saying it might not be necessary to completely eliminate ultra-processed food from our diets altogether? I don't think that's realistic for most people. I would say try to focus more on what you should be eating, fruits and vegetables, fresh or frozen, because frozen is often cheaper and it is just as nutritious and lasts longer. 
but you really don't have to be perfect all the time. In fact, one of the best bits of advice I heard was from Christopher Gardner. He's a nutrition researcher at Stanford University, and he says he likes to follow a rule his favorite chef um, coined, like the 80-20 rule. She chooses very intentionally 80% of the time, and 20% of the time she has fun with food because food brings us joy. And she goes off the rails if she wants for that 20%, because 80% of the time she eats really well. So you do want to aim for a better balance between ultra-processed and minimally or unprocessed food. But to start, maybe just focus on a few small changes because that can add up over time. NPR's Maria Godoy, thank you. Thanks, Ari. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. The Boston Calling Music Festival brings local bands and national musical stars to stages at the Harvard Athletic Complex this weekend. Stay with WBUR and WBUR.org for coverage of the musical extravaganza starting tomorrow on Morning Edition. Some clouds tonight, then clearing out for sunny skies tomorrow and through the long weekend. It'll warm up from the upper 60s tomorrow to low 80s on Sunday, around 78 degrees for Memorial Day. Marketplace is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School. Ranked by U.S. News & World Report as best in New England for primary care education. Learn more at umassmed.edu.